imagine actually having a team of Galton, Miedema, Russo and Blackstonians together. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. I suppose 90 second minute. I've never scored a 90 second minute winner. I don't know what it feels like. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It is half past seven. This is OTBAM. It's Owen and Johnny with you right away through until 10 o'clock this morning. We're going to be chatting to Oshin McConville later on this morning. We'll get Ross Hamilton's statistical breakdown of where Ireland are at in the aftermath of the Six Nations. And we'll be chatting to Paddy Agnew about Italian football as a national team head for the World Cup playoffs tonight. You can tweet us at Off the Ball or you can comment on the YouTube stream if that's where you're getting us. Johnny, how are you getting on? Morning. What's going on? Feel kind of like that Kermit the Frog meme where he's got his hand up against the window looking out at the world outside. That feels like us in Ireland at the moment looking at everybody else going out playing for their place in the World Cup yeah. knowing that we won't be there. It was. Do we, do we really want to go to Qatar though? Very good point. Yeah. Tommy sometimes Martin you, sometimes you forget that and that's yeah. kind of the whole point I guess. I don't know. I, I think it was of all the World Cups to miss this one was definitely uh, I think Stephen Kenny slightly change the narrative in terms of whether he wants to qualify when he realised like that we weren't going to and he was saying oh we're we're all it's all about the Euros or whatever it's not as if he didn't try to qualify for this World Cup but um, it's interesting Stephen Kenny of of football people he definitely has a social conscience he's very in tune with politics and that and uh, I don't think this World Cup would sit very easily with him either I'm, I'm not sure he's been on the record about Qatar but I wouldn't I don't care missing this World Cup at all to be honest yeah yeah, it's a fair point. There, there, the one after it is, is has the possibility mm. to be one of the best ever mm. with uh, USA, Mexico, Canada. Although that could be a bit, just a little bit too much of a broad geographical mass to be actually yeah. enjoyable. Do you remember USA '94? Unfortunately, not. No. What age you? I, I, I was, I, I was born in and around then. Yeah, yeah. Been very vague on the details. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I was like, born in '94. It's like one of those Wikipedia pages where it's like we need age, citation fi- about fifty-eight. Like I need, I need citation. Seven <laughs> or fifty-eight. Um, I remember it, yeah, because uh, it was just the timing of the games was mad. Like, and I remember talking to talking to the local barman. One of the early games, Spain were playing South Korea, and uh, I, I must point out now, I was like I was ninety-four, so I was eleven. But the bar was the hub of the community when we'd be collected for football games or whatever and he was telling me like Spain were 2-0 up and 10 minutes ago and he said I just went to bed and obviously he woke up and it had finished 2-all and it was like it was just the games were so late that uh, it was hard to stay up as a kid but uh, I remember remember the, the the Italian game very very well and the hysteria in the country at that time I think the, the, the heat got the better of us in the end like we really 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 struggled in the, I think the game in Orlando against Mexico, I think it was like 40 degrees pitch side or something. That mm. was the, one of the big teams of the tournament long before climate change became an issue. Um, and then obviously the Packy Bonner mistake. But uh, um, that'd be a great World Cup trip, wouldn't it? I haven't been to Mexico or Canada now, wouldn't Yeah. yeah. I guess you have, you're kind of dependent on, first of all, Ireland qualifying and second of all, them getting a, a good draw. Like mm. a, a nice little mix between uh, three of the countries wouldn't be bad. The Qatar thing is horrible though because if you were to bring a World Cup to... Um, the Middle East in general and bring it to a country like for example Iran or Jordan or somewhere like that like just say for argument's sake Iran which is a football crazy country and if you brought a World Cup there which wouldn't happen but if you did and you you developed stadia it would have a legacy like Qatar thing is just ridiculous like Qatar has a tiny local population it's mainly expats and like what what's going to happen to these stadia afterwards like it's mm. it's and not to mind all the people who died 
Um, I just find it horrible. I just find it so wrong on every level. I would argue that even in a country that would be more football crazy, the legacy of building those stadia probably would be negligible anyway. Mm. Um, and then this, on top of it, as you say, um, actual blood in the hands of, of building the stadiums themselves mm-hmm. is it's horrendous. And, uh, and notwithstanding the fact that they have to play it in winter as well. Do you know, I mean, th- th- there's so many layers to it that are wrong. Yeah, the, the, like the winter thing will be will be interesting, like a, a World Cup final with the week before Christmas. Mm. I, I think there might be a bit of a novelty to mm. that, but again, that's it's just... It's far from the biggest issue. I, 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 like, I mean, I, I think uh, getting over the sporting logistics of it is, is, is fine. There's definitely a bigger elephant in the room. Mm. Uh, and speaking of which, I think just, uh, we weren't going to do this now, but it, it just kind of feels right to just talk about this now is uh, when you look at the, the back pages this morning, we've got competition mm. uh, for uh, the, the Euros based... Well, we don't really, but we have an annoying kind of cousin who just like just wants to annoy us like I would say that maybe it could, could the Turk could the Turkish put together some sort of reasonable mm-hmm. bid that would be real reasonable competition like it, it does seem that over the last couple of days that uh, the whole idea of you know Wembley being a host city for a European final and semi-finals as it would probably be the case is just totally fine mm. uh, given the conversation last summer was well England can never be allowed to mm. host a, a major tournament again can never be uh, allowed to host a final again so I, w- I wonder would that actually c- come into things as these mm-hmm. bids are put together but uh, obviously as you allude to there the big thing here is as it's put on the back of the London Times brazen bid by Russia to hijack Euros some of the stuff that's been said here uh, is extraordinary. Um, UEFA, first of all, in, in a statement, uh, asked if Russia is permitted to bid for the Euros given current sanctions, said the UEFA Executive Committee will remain on standby to convene further extraordinary meetings to reassess the legal and factual situation, including in light of the declaration of interest expressed by the Russian Football Union. Like, mm. what the hell that means, I don't know. You, you could have just said no. Yeah, you could have just said yeah. no. Uh, you, like, I mean, you've got uh, Alexander Tukov, who we've mentioned on the show before, the Russian Federation's president, who sits on the UEFA. Exco is part of, chief executive, not part of, chief executive of uh, Gazprom. He says we must take the opportunity to host the Euros. Uh, it will be at the World Cup stadiums and we have developed infrastructure because that is the problem. Everybody's thinking, oh, do they have the stadiums? Mm. And Dukov says, yes, we do have the stadiums. So, yes, problem solved. all is right. Problem solved. Uh, Russia are back in the mix. So, something to keep an eye on at this point. But uh, I guess it, it would it would be quite a twist at this point if it was going to be Ireland and UK. Yeah, it's so it's so weird the way Russia works. Like, I honestly don't know what's going on behind this. Like, you know, I, I don't, um, you know... Everything about Russia should point out for, you know, that Putin is basically taken down from within because there's no way Russia can benefit at all from what's going on here. But the system of their government and the system of post-Soviet Russia, it's so corrupt. I honestly don't know. I mean, I don't even know how the football ties in with this. Like, where did this order come from? I yeah. don't know. Like, yeah. um, it's it just seems such a weird country. And I, I do have um, a lot of sympathy for the ordinary Russians who are probably being tarred with the one brush here in the sense of like guilty by association about all of this and um, I mean my father would have been in in Ireland or sorry in London probably in the early days of the IRA's campaign and it wasn't easy being Irish in London over there but they didn't support the IRA you know and I think there is a bit of sadness about the ordinary Russians who um, not only had to live under a Putin government but now have to kind of be deemed like I guess sponsored this rubbish in the Ukraine when there probably isn't much they can do about it. Yeah. As for this, I mean, it's just, it's just the latest uh, bit of drama, isn't it? Like it would be mad. Like the last time any of us saw pictures beamed 
uh, into our consciousness by, from the Luzhniki Stadium mm. was that rally for, for Putin last week and I was mm. like let's let's host a, mm. a European final there so I, I mean it's it's pie in the sky stuff you'd like to think but then again as we just mentioned football hasn't necessarily done itself any favours over the last couple of years uh, just a couple of other things we want to uh, touch on at the top here this morning first of all uh, this the situation with the Ireland squad and uh, I guess Mark Travers being unavailable and uh, bringing in a goalkeeper who's not called Darren Randolph uh, yeah. initially caused a, a little bit of a storm yesterday when Darren Randolph replied on the FAI uh, Instagram, as you can see there, that Dunn and Talbot joins Ireland squad. At FAI, I haven't retired yet with a host of emojis. Uh, I must be too old. Uh, like... I think Darren Randolph hasn't really played much football or any football really all season and then uh, replied to it I'm just bantering people I'm here if ever needed if not so be it good luck to the world of young goalkeepers yeah like the, the use of emojis are interesting he's used a lot of them I mean are you an emoji man Do, no no I mean, like I, I found um, the, the use of emojis are very intriguing obviously and uh, he's used quite a few there but I mean who cares ultimately uh, who the third choice goalie is for two friendlies but at the same time he's made it very interesting well like I mean I, with the first point there who cares like yeah. So one of the headlines this morning uh, Out in the cold Back of the Irish Daily Mail Out in the cold Randolph raps Ireland boss For squad snub It was a joke <laughs> it, uh, was, it was joking Well he was but uh, I mean at the same time Obviously you can read into that What you will Like you probably as You probably shouldn't go down the, the route of going on Instagram Or Facebook or whatever it is And doing that And uh, the bigger debate here for me is um, Well you, you could argue the bigger debate or maybe the more debatable one in League of Ireland circles anyway is Ed McGinty not getting in rather than Talbot because Ed McGinty I think if you asked any non-Bows or Sligo Rovers fan and you just asked every other club in the League of Ireland if you asked their supporters who the best goalie is it would be Ed McGinty who's had like reasonable experience with the Irish under-21s as well so it seems that, that surprised me um, obviously the Randolph one is I mean he's that basically says he's done as an international footballer if he's that far down the pecking order I think yeah unless like it was an extreme situation but he's uh, I know you say it's a joke but he's not helping himself and like he's met a he's met an issue now of the irrelevance of the third choice keeper for two friendly <laughs> games you know like I would still circle back to my point he was like he, he might well have just been joking I think it was just a joke and well, I he think probably he, like, doesn't, he probably doesn't think he's much to lose this day anyway. exactly I mean? and like I mean it makes sense that if uh, if Travers gets injured like, first of all you're, you're one and two and probably three are set in stone for the next little while McGinty, the worldy the worldy young goalkeeper the worldy old, that could be interpreted wrong. many ways well you think it could be sarcasm well like I, I, that was the first thing that came to my mind well Queen and it just it, won a major trophy as uh, as a goalkeeper uh, Bazunu I don't think I, I don't think uh, Darren Randolph needs to be uh, guided to, to see how good these, these kids are I'm, <laughs> I'm not I, I'm a big fan of sarcasm but I'm actually I'm taking all of this at face value I'm I'm fully fully believing it, uh, what what Randolph is saying, and I, like it might have just been um, a cheeky message to put it that way. Like Talbot's twenty four, McGinty's what twenty two. Uh, yeah, he's like the twenty ones. It's a trend of just giving young goalkeepers a chance when it's a, your third choice goalkeeper. I mean, that's what you want. Bring somebody around the squad, see what it's like, because chances are, if their trajectory keeps going over the next little while, mm. they might have a more prominent role in the squad. It, I think that's. I think it's it's, it's 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 an open and closed case, really. Yeah, it's. Um I'm sure for McGinty it would have it would have been a great boon for him to get into the squad and um you know, who knows, maybe two goalkeepers get injured, it's unlikely, but uh 
the for Talbot, uh, I, I I don't know. I think I think McGinty's probably more of an informed goalkeeper. I've, I've not seen that much about. I'm a big fan of Talbot as well. I think he's really good. But McGinty's been in an unbelievable form for Sligo, who've been the surprise packages in some respects. One other League of Ireland story we actually just want to touch on before we move on as well is regarding your beloved Galway United. What's going on Sleeping here? Sleeping giants, as they've been called, Sleep- even though giants, giants. Yeah, well, they're certainly not giants. Like. <laughs> um, Pointed out as well, like Tommy Barrett's the Treaty United manager, he's pointed out the, the, the absolute dearth of Limerick internationals who've played football for Ireland. I think it goes back 40 or 50 years. Um, and I've, like, as a Galway United fan, I've reflected on them, the fact that Galway was a bit of an irrelevance, but then sort of David Ford came along and the likes of Ryan Manning, um, uh, the, the Horgans, obviously. Um, so we've had a, a good run with our, our footballers, but um, Ryan Manning barely played for Galway United um, Darrell Horgan did not play for Galway United um, there are the likes of Patrick Hooban did not play for Galway United uh, and Ryan Connolly did no, not no, play no, for Galway United um, Ryan Connolly obviously another mention his brother Ethan has been in the Galway United underage setup. Um, but we've we've had a lot of players who just haven't like really good Galway players who haven't ever Galway United and partly the reason is that um, I guess money has been an issue and obviously the co-op now a, a very um, small number of co-op members by the way like that, which is a testament to the fact that Galway United is kind of still a small club in many ways um, will vote on the Comers effectively taking control of the club next Wednesday um, so it's very interesting like I, I, I note that um, RT did a story on it and it got huge hits so people are interested in this mm. I think the Comers being billionaires is obviously an outlier in Ireland and anywhere anyway um, they're self-made people from Glenamady where my mother's from real rural Ireland um, they were linked with the takeover of Aston Villa a few years right. ago they, were, they, wasn't, they weren't even linked they were involved in a potential takeover um, I just don't know I don't know the the real kind of um, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of their motivation because why have they been given like a really really good sponsorship package to the club for the last five odd years they've been exceptionally good to go United maybe they think well are we not just better off owning it but I guess as a fan and I'd be voting on it I would need to um, know what their interest is like Alex Murphy is linked with the move to say like uh, Newcastle United at the moment and maybe that's alerted the sponsors to the fact that we do have Go United does have an asset in terms of some of the young players uh, the likes of Alex Murphy in theory could bring in a lot of money to Go United down the line um, but other than that it doesn't really have any asset it doesn't own Terryland Park even DC Park and it doesn't have a training facility so the asset really is the, are the players um, but on the other side I think uh, it is a there's a lot of potential for the club in Galway in terms of people getting out and supporting them. Galway's a great city. People love coming to Galway. Mm. Um, we haven't really even tapped into the sort of foreigners, newcomers to the parish community yet. Um, visitors love coming to Galway. And, you know, I know we've rugby and other sporting kind of um, rivalry going on there, but uh, it was a lovely stadium and there's a lot of potential there. But when you give up the club from fan ownership, you know, obviously it's out of your hands then. Yeah, so it's double-edged sword because I'm just kind of brushing up on it this morning that the Comer Group have acquired a site for a training facility. Mm. So they, they That's Mountain South near kind of, um, near Athen Rye, yeah. Yeah, so and like this is not uh, an outsider coming in to invest in the club. This is no. somebody who pumped a lot of money in already. Mm. So I presume that will allay a lot of the fears that any of the fans will have moving away from a co-op setup. Well, totally. Like, Go United, like I tragically voted for the Saudi takeover of Go United, which was a few years ago 
now I will defend it and say the reason I voted for it was because if it went completely tits up, there was Galway United had very little to lose because they didn't have anything as it was, and the Saudis we were told were going to invest in the youths. Um, uh, you know, the youth facilities, yada, yada, they're going to leave a legacy, um, even though it turns out they were obviously, like, they were fly-by-night merchants. They just, they did a legger. I must do a piece on what happened to the Saudi takeover, yeah. because it, it might even entail going over to Saudi Arabia and asking. We were told at the meeting that they, they weren't... Um, they had been vetted and they weren't like part of the Saudi regime. But again, like I was saying, so about it sounds Russia, eerily familiar to what we've heard from Newcastle, isn't it? Yeah, again, and even with Newcastle, it's kind of more, um, it's fairly more, it's more transparent. I'm not sure much goes on in Saudi Arabia that, does, that doesn't go up to the regime in some shape or form because it seems to be that sort of a country where Mohammed bin Salman just basically controls things. Um, and I voted for the Saudi takeover, so I think some people who voted for that and fe- felt like idiots afterwards, including me, um, will at least think twice and will want more clarity as to the intentions of the comers. Who I, I, I don't, I don't, I just don't know what their intentions are. And they've so much money that basically the money that they invest in going United so far would be kind of like me, um, you know, buying a chicken fill a roll at this stage. That's how much money they have. So I don't know what their intentions are, but I, I imagine it's overwhelmingly likely the co-op members will vote for it because if the Comer brothers weren't there and I, I, I'm in, I'm in, I presume their sponsorship would be in jeopardy if this is voted down, which is completely fair. And if they did a legger then, which they're, they would be entitled to do and it was left to the club and this small number of volunteers to run it um, with all the underage teams and all the all the work that it entails to run a professional football club, it'll be very daunting. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. So I don't think we've much of a... If you wanted to vote for the, the fan ownership model, we'll come up with a structure to run the club then and try to rival Shamrock Rovers, who are a million miles behind at the moment. Yeah. So the, the vote will happen next week. Wednesday, yeah. Uh, that proposed takeover. So uh, definitely want to keep an eye on in a League of Ireland context. Just one other story, Johnny, we wanted to get into before you tell you what's uh, coming up and getting into our World Cup uh, playoffs preview is uh, Rachel Blackmore and uh, her, her worth at this stage. And, yeah. And the, I guess the, the, commercial, the commercial beast that she's become. Yeah, I did a piece for Virgin Media just before um, Cheltenham and um, we interviewed Rachel and... Uh, she she had a KPMG hat on and I, I didn't know that she'd been sponsored by KPMG but it turned out like I think it was only announced the day afterwards but she was wearing the KPMG um, hat and what value have KPMG got over the last like week and a half or whatever it got me thinking yesterday I wouldn't, like what what's Rachel must be she must be really earning decent money, really decent money as as a jockey compared to you know even the good jockeys of of my generation. And this piece in the Examiner, um, brilliant Blackmore set for one million sponsorship return. It actually touches on that. Now it's a little bit speculative as to what she will be worth over the next year or so. But the Examiner is a brilliant sports section today. This is one of the pieces Ian Mallon has in, um, where she's been able to. Um, Monetize uh, her value. Like I think, if I were if I were in the sponsorship game, like women's sport is where it's at for me at the moment. And I think you're probably getting way more bang for your buck than you are with like the the FEI situation with the sponsors. We we see the sky on the jersey over there, and we look at Ireland's inability, the FEI's inability for the senior team. Um, and I wonder, like, I'm sure it's a fraction of what they'd pay for the senior team, but the value is where like it's it's just a, it's a I think like. 
Little did really well out of like the the women's uh, Gaelic games, and I think uh, it's it's something that's on the up. Like it's just so on the up. It's there's been a revolution. The revolution is going on. Rachel has been part of that revolution, um, and I think you know KPMG will be absolutely delighted with their sponsorship mm. in the space of a week and a half or whatever it is since Shelton began. Yeah, and the thing is, I guess on Blackmore's side of things, it's not even getting. And I'm saying this in inverted commas for uh, radio listeners. It's not even a cheaper version of the product, as in, like, the, as you say, the Sky might be getting involved with the women's team because it's a less totally. costly in- investment. Whereas Rachel Blackmore is, uh, you will not get, uh, you're not getting in there cheaply because she is one of the best jockeys, full stop. Totally. Yeah, like, she's, cause she, she's competing in, uh, alongside men. It is the sport, uh, rather than the women's sport. So, uh, like, I guess that kind of adds for a testament to it. But also, if you're looking at it from a commercial standpoint, I guess you're getting in right at the top straight away as opposed yeah. to, to, to buying buying um, small at the start uh, like when I when I did my thesis in college I had to do a thesis on I did a thesis on a newspaper but if you were to do a thesis now you could look at like the coverage of Rachel Blackmore over the last sort say like 13 months since the Cheltenham last year um, versus any other jockey because I'd say there's no comparison and she was in the front of every paper uh, the Saturday after Cheltenham not to mind when she won the Grand National that just wouldn't exist um, and I do wonder as well Owen just a further point in this I do wonder the value for bookmakers taking on um like trainers and and jockeys as kind of ambassadors and all that because I think in general punters look down on that stuff I think they'd see no benefit to punters and they wonder is there a conflict of interest and stuff like that whereas with with KPMG um or Davy getting involved with Leona Maguire for example like that I I think you know it's just good for every party yeah yeah, for sure. Right, it is 7.51. You're with us here on OTBAM. It's brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, as you can see, we've got our World Cup Playoff Digest coming your way in just a moment. Paddy Agnew will then be with us at five past eight to add meat to the bones on the Italian story at the moment. Uh, you boys in green, Ukraine match. We'll be telling you about that charity match that's coming up at Home Farm this weekend at 25 past eight. Sports pages coming your way at 25 to nine. And then Sports News with John Duggan at quarter to nine. Ross Hamilton, as I've mentioned, giving his statistical breakdown of the Six Nations in an Ireland context at ten to nine. Oshin McConville, I was chatting to him yesterday, will be playing that at ten past nine. And then if you missed Wednesday Night Rugby, fear not, because you'll get it at half past nine right here on OTBAM. Now, get ready to cheer Ireland on in the TikTok Women's Six Nations. To launch this year's campaign, we are giving away two tickets to see Ireland take on Wales this Saturday at quarter to five at the RDS. The lucky winners will also be entered into a draw to be with a chance to win an overnight stay at this stunning intercontinental hotel on the night of the game. To enter, just tell us what you think the score will be this weekend between Ireland and Wales. Wherever you're watching on OTBAM, just comment on Twitter, Facebook or on YouTube. International Women's Rugby is at the RDS and there's nothing like it. Be part of the action get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie right Johnny we are on the outside looking in as the playoffs begin tonight and uh, I guess there's a a number of different levels of frustration but uh, one of them is that this format is absolutely class like uh, from a neutral standpoint even it is absolutely class one legged ties you've got 10 teams uh, already qualified from Europe for the World Cup 11 more teams now competing for the remaining three slots just a quick reminder of what the, the draw looks like Italy or Portugal will definitely miss out on the World Cup. That was the headline from the draw when it was done at the end of last year. Also, Russia have been kicked out, which means Poland currently have a a bye into the final. And the other piece of news is that it's unclear when Scotland versus Ukraine is going to be played for obvious reasons. They're thinking that they might be able to squeeze it in to June. Steve Clark says he just doesn't have a clue. Andrew Shevchenko says they really want to settle the game on the pitch. Some of their players are literally fighting a war. So it's very, very hard to put your finger on when that 
that game will be played or how that's exactly going to be settled. So that's up in the air. The paths as they are. Wales are playing Austria tonight uh, and then Scotland and Ukraine is also on that same path. Uh, path B then, uh, Poland have a bye to the final and then they will play the winner of Sweden against the Czech Republic. And then Path C is the really tasty one, Portugal against Turkey tonight and Italy against North Macedonia. The two winners play off against one another. Remember, these are one-leg ties and one-leg finals, which just adds to the excitement of it. So we're going to go in descending order here, the best fixture first, which I think anyway is uh, portugal versus Turkey the winner of this game will be at home for the final which is next Tuesday which uh, adds a whole other level of incentive to it Portugal of course uh, in our group in the Republic of Ireland's group in qualifying for this and uh, I guess we kind of uh, this this result I guess did catch our attention but Ireland were playing on the same night when Alexander Mitrovic scored that 90th minute goal that winner on the final day of the group and that draw in Dublin also costly as it turned out for Portugal their defeat to, to Serbia in uh, in Lisbon was their first defeat in World Cup qualifying at the Estadio de Luz since 2008 and they haven't failed to qualify for a World Cup since 1998 so to hope for Turkey then is that uh, Portugal are going to be without Ruben Dias they're going to be without Joao Cancelo and also Pepe has just tested positive for Covid so they've got a, a massive hole in their defence Ruben Neves is also going to be me- uh, missing for them and Renato Sanchez suspended as well so they've got a pretty hefty uh, injury slash suspension list to deal with Turkey on the other hand I'm not sure did you tip them for dark horse uh, success at Euro 2020 I thought they were disappointed at the Euros actually to be honest um, the biggest disappointment I would yeah, say um, just toothless in front of goal and there was a lot of like I remember the betting markets at the time were very keen on Turkey it was interesting like and the betting markets in general are not far off I mean it's, it's professional money and they're just a flop really I think the worst dark horse shout of all time mm. and I was tipping them as, as dark horses uh, zero points for, from their games at the Euros and then after that their form didn't get much better they got absolutely hammered 6-1 by Netherlands in September uh, they did however get maximum points from their last three games in their group phase and they ended up only two points behind the Dutch in the table which probably illustrates how good they were in the first half of qualifying which is why everybody was like this Turkey team are going to do really well and, and, and they're, going to do, um, they're going to do something at this Euros which didn't happen only Gibraltar ended up conceding more goals than them in that qualifying group for example their big thing has been scoring goals and they scored in every single one of the qualifying games and again as I said a Portuguese defence is relatively depleted which makes you a little bit excited about what Turkey might be able to do uh, tonight they haven't actually qualified for a World Cup since 2002 when they came third so I mean for a country that size I would say that they've been one of the biggest underperformers in, in world football over the like, last 20 we're, years we're talking about their bid for the Euros or whatever the joint bid but like what an absolutely fanatical country when it comes to football exactly like, yeah like definitely um I mean, it's ridiculous to look at the teams that Italy or Portugal are not going to make the World Cup here, and we're talking about a 32-team Euros. Then, like in Ireland, I mean, this is this is one level of it making it too difficult. Like, and then the Euros is ridiculous. But um, Portugal weren't great in the group, really. Like, they I don't think they really deserve to beat us in Faro. I thought Serbia were better than them in both games that we played against them. Um, Definitely, they were just more of a team. Like Turkey, I mean, you're looking at the, sorry, Portugal. You're looking at the the players that they had in the pitch in both games against Ireland. They were just far better than the sum of their parts. They just didn't uh, didn't perform. So then you mentioned the 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 players out. Like Turkey could be an interesting one tonight. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the one we're going to have to watch on the couch I think because we have nice nice options there I think that's the one I think that, that, that for me is the one just in terms of a couple of team news bits for that uh, Turkish team uh, like you're going to have Soyuncu and Demiral in the defence Burak Yilmaz is still 
their lead striker again. He was the guy we all pinned our hopes on last summer. Yilmaz for a golden boot, Turkey to go yeah. to the semi-finals. Neither of those two things uh, materialised whatsoever. So, yeah, that's tonight. Uh, the other game in that path tonight then, which I think actually could be pretty interesting, is it Italy versus North Macedonia. So, as I say, um, these teams are going to be away next Tuesday for that final. Uh, Italy have never lost a World Cup qualifying match on their own turf, is the long and short of it. So, North Macedonia will have to do something historic uh, tonight, or Italy will have to crumble in historic fashion if North Macedonia are going to get through to this final. Euros, absolutely fresh in the memory for Italy. You'd like to think they're still on a bit of a high from that, but let's also not forget that they didn't make Russia. So, they've never failed uh, to make it to the World Cup twice in the bounce. So, again, historic consequences here if Italy don't actually get through from this uh, the, the reason why they're here is because they got done by Switzerland in qualifying they finished two points off the top but you might remember as well I think it was the last day of qualifying they were held to a nil-all draw in Belfast by Northern Ireland mm. and on the same night I think uh, Switzerland won 4-0 against Bulgaria I think it was only a two goal difference in the end so they were probably going over there hoping to win two or three nil and qualify on top of goal difference they could only win one of their last five matches so it was an after Euros sort of party that just completely seeped into the mindset you'd suspect they drew four of those last five matches and that's what did them in the end they had no Verratti in November but they have him back now that's going to be important some questions at the moment over Benucci and Chiellini's fitness they've both had injuries this season and it's unsure just exactly how fit they are they may actually go without both of them tonight for example uh, North Macedonia then I guess we all watched them uh, last summer it was their first Euros they did lose all of their games but I think again disgrace themselves like not at all yeah. not at all and also as well if you look at 2021 as a whole they had that incredible result where they beat Germany in qualifying and I guess that put them into a really good position because they only beat Romania to second place by one point in their group in the end uh, but I guess it was uh, through the Nations League as well where they had their success so they only lost Handev's still playing said it again Handev's no he's playing. gone Yeah, that's he, a big thing he was like what 37 at the yeah mm. Handev is gone Elmas is gone or he's missing tonight sorry he's, mm. he's still around but he's going to be missing tonight so two of their best players if you're going to look at their uh, Euro squad not available tonight so they're massive losses for them they did just lose one of their last seven in World Cup qualifying and four clean sheets over that stretch as well so they've kind of uh, beefed up a little bit at the back and not since November 2016 have they failed to find the back of the net away from home in qualifying so that's, that's pretty good, impressive good yeah. records at the front and at the back which makes me think that this is absolutely Absolutely worth watching as well, but really it's hard to look beyond an, an Italy Portugal final here. Yeah, and one is on uh, Virgin Media three as well. If you don't have the uh, Sky Sports package, and that's the Portugal game. So right, okay, yeah, I believe that's uh, it's on terrestrial. So that is one of the paths. Anyway, that is uh, path C, and uh, the likelihood. I'm not saying the Turkey aren't going to do it, but the likelihood is in Porto next Tuesday. You're going to have Portugal against Italy uh, the next uh, situation that we've got tonight then is Sweden versus Czech Republic whoever wins this is actually going to be on the road for the final as I say they will be on the road in Poland uh, for the final Poland remember got that by against Russia uh, Sweden essentially bottles their qualification for the World Cup they had a cushion on Spain and uh, they had to do that simple thing of beating Georgia at home, I think. Or maybe, maybe it was the way. They had to beat Georgia, and they lost to Georgia. We uh, kind of know all about that banana skin. And then they were beaten by Spain at the last day, an 86-minute uh, winner from Alvaro Morata. So that ended their automatic qualification hopes. So they finished four points behind Spain. 
and I guess this is a, a team that would be really I'd say favoured in this path uh, they will be missing Zlatan tonight he's suspended um, and of uh, less importance Emil Kraft uh, of Newcastle is also out so you, you might have a situation I've uh, just been reading up on this where Lindelof may be potentially playing it right back so if that doesn't send shivers down the spine of every Swede I'm, I'm not sure what will you're also probably going to have a situation where Alanga will make his debut over the course of the next few days for Sweden probably from the bench it's a team full of attacking talents uh, if Alanga's not even starting you've got Kulisevsky obviously who's, who started so well with Spurs you've got Alexander Isak and of course Emil Forsberg in that uh, Sweden attack the Czech Republic side of things uh, I would say one of the surprise packages of the Euros wasn't really interested in watching them they ended up making it to the last eight where Denmark dumped them out finished third in their, in their group behind Wales and behind Belgium but since losing to Belgium in September they've gone five games unbeaten and it was their um, it was their Nations League obviously which got them into this position they're going to have no Patrick Schick tonight which is a, a big loss and there's some doubts around Soufal's availability but uh, Socek will be playing that one I think is possibly the, the tightest one to call but Sweden probably slight favourites in that one especially with Schick missing and then finally, the other one, uh, Wales versus Austria. Uh, these teams are guaranteed a home final. Like You could have a situation here where it's Wales versus Scotland playing off in, uh, in a one-leg game in Cardiff for, um, for a place in Qatar. Uh, just a quick bit on them. Wales, they'd already uh, sorted their spot in this playoff through the Nations League. We were in their group. Uh, they come second in that group, as I mentioned, though, with Belgium and Czech Republic, which gives them the home advantage. And the question always with Wales is, what's Gareth Bale's situation? He's played 77 minutes of competitive football since November. But, I mean, what's his, what was the thing again? Wales, golf, Real Madrid, in that order. Was yeah, that yeah. was that the, the banner? So, I mean, it's top of his priority list and uh, it, it doesn't really come close to anything else. So, uh, you might imagine a more fit, uh, ready version of Gareth Bale might come up. They're going to be without Danny Ward, Kiefer Moore, injuries, and then Joe Morell is injured through suspension, or out through suspension, I should say. And then Austria. They finished fourth in a group behind Denmark, Scotland and Israel. So they only got through to this playoff because of their performances in the Nations League. I mean, when you look at their team, you look at Marco Arnautovic. How's he playing this season? He scored nine goals for... Who, who do you think he's playing for these days? Who is Arnautovic with us? He's Bologna in Syria. Okay. Yeah, so he's uh, banged in nine goals for Great them this city season. city to visit. Yeah? Yeah, college city, yeah. Right, haven't city. been. I have a good friend living over there. It's yeah, top top place to go. You need to go over and watch Marco then. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Um That'll be an interesting game. I think all four of them, mm. uh, like uh, just reading up of them, are, are very, very interesting. And um, I think these one-legged affairs just really mm. add to the tension of it. Uh, and again, I just can't help thinking that could have been us. Yeah, but, we don't want it. We don't want it. That's I, the I've kind of yeah. Long, long idea. forgotten about this World Cup. I, I, it's definitely a World Cup where I'd be less interested even in watching it as well. I just think it's horrible on so many levels. I can I'm sure I'd be watching it, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is four minutes past eight you're with us here on OTBAM which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day we are doing a bit of a deeper dive on that Italian story with Paddy Agnew next OTBAM yeah OTB sports reporter Ashling O'Reilly with All-Ireland Club winner Caelan Doherty there you can go check out the full chat on our YouTube channel now it is brilliant and it's part of our AIB Hero Series as Ashling finds out what turned the village of Kilku into an All-Ireland winning club it's brought to you by AIB, proud sponsors of the Football Hurling and Camogie All-Ireland Club Championships. Check out hashtag the toughest for more. Right, at six minutes past eight, uh, delighted to welcome Paddy Agnew back to the show. Paddy, how are you getting on? I'm fine. Good morning to everybody. Yeah, good morning. Um, 
tonight, Italy versus North Macedonia in a semi-final to qualify for the World Cup. It should be straightforward for Italy on paper, but I assume amongst some of the Italian fans there is a little bit of PTSD from 2017 and what happened with Sweden lingering around. Yeah, yeah, or, or indeed what happened with Northern Ireland in 1948, but <laughs> we won't touch on that. Mm. No, uh, hey, I would agree with what you've just said. Uh, the uh, the what nothing will be will be uh, taken for granted with North Macedonia, but uh, basically uh, Italian fans and Italians expect them to get through this one. And uh, we're talking about the big game, which will be next Tuesday against either Turkey or Portugal. Um, you know, um, obviously, uh, 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 everybody's watching this game closely. Everybody, I mean, in, in the football world, because what we're talking about here, after all, is Italy. This is the country with the second best record in the World Cup, four times uh, World Cup winners, twice finalists, the reigning European champions. Can you really imagine a World Cup without this side? It would be extraordinary, and there is a realistic possibility that it might happen. For the first time ever, Italy might fail to qualify for back-to-back World Cups. Is it as bad as, as that sort of scenario suggests, uh, or, or is this a, a little bit of an aberration? No, I think it's a bit of an aberration, because uh, you saw yourselves how good a team Italy is at the European Championships uh, last summer. Uh, they uh, were cruising through their World Cup qualifying group, uh, won their opening games, they drew against Bulgaria, and they had this weird thing. There's really only one side uh, they were battling for for winning the group. That was Switzerland, who are a good team, as we know. Uh, and in both the games against Switzerland, both the qualifiers, Jorginho missed a penalty, which would have won the game. And both two games, which um, I would argue Italy deserved to win. And that put them into, uh, you know, that ruined all their plans. They went to Belfast and they played uh, their one really poor game uh, in that qualifying group, drew nil-nil, and now they find themselves in the lottery of the playoff. And, you know, whatever about the game against North Macedonia tonight in Palermo, uh, obviously uh, you can take nothing for granted against either Portugal or Turkey. For sure. If you get through tonight. Especially considering it's on the road as well next week and uh, potentially having to go to Porto as well to, to, to play Portugal there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Has, has there been any sense of a hangover at all post-Euros? A hangover in what sense? Sore I, head? A sore head, a definitely, wine, which, yeah. which would contribute to... Like, I mean, uh, I would, I'd like to think what would happen if, if Ireland ever won a <laughs> European Championships. Probably wouldn't qualify for a tournament for 40 years. But, yeah. like, I mean, it's, it's understandable if, that, if that's the case or, or is it, like maybe it's just a sense no. of... No. You're, no, you, you no, disagree I mean, with that? I'm, no, I just, I don't, I mean, the, the, uh, they drew with Bulgaria uh, mm. early in the autumn. That was a bit of a hangover to some extent. But uh, by and large, the group was proceeding perfectly, all on, uh, all on cue. Had Jorginho put away his two penalties, uh, Italy would be in the World Cup at this point. It's as simple as that. It's, it's, one of those, it's, not, it's not often the same guy misses two match-winning penalties in successive qualifiers against the same team. What was the Euros like over there, Paddy, actually? Well, uh, Italians were, um, as you all know, they followed the, the Italian national team was followed passionately and madly. Uh, but they were, you know, lukewarmish about it uh, coming in. But uh, all these tournaments, uh, they get stamped by the way the thing begins. And it began very well, a 3 0 win against Turkey. And from that moment on, the bandwagon was rolling. Uh, and, uh, you know, majority of Italians were uh, 
very, very hopeful from that moment on. And the majority of the experts felt that Italy were uh, by far the best team in the tournament. And in terms of, you know, we, we spoke about earlier on the show, in terms of a World Cup in Qatar, like, has there been much chat about that over there? Ah, yeah, this is the chat that, you, that you've had in, 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 in all over the world. You know, is, is this a good idea to be playing it in November? Is it a good idea to be playing it in uh, extraordinary heat conditions? Um, and a lot of people are uh, critical of that. But, you know, it, football professionals say, OK, well, that's what, that's what FIFA's come up with and we'll get on with it. It's still the World Cup. And just in terms of your years there, we, we spoke about um, Festia Vaselli and James Banqua both going to Udinese on the show earlier this week. Um, have you felt that decline in terms of the Italian game from your early days over there? And, you know, people of my generation would have been watching Italian football on Monday nights, I guess, in the 90s and thinking it was the best thing ever. And in those days, Milan were dominant and they were dominant in Europe. And nowadays, the Premier League is obviously totally taken it over and I, I remember like going to games in Italy there, there, it got a lot harder to get into games because of crowd trouble and so on and so forth what, have you felt that sort of decline yourself or, or am I exaggerating? No, no, you're not exaggerating you're absolutely bang on I mean Italy missed a, uh, a golden moment in the sense that they had that great period when, when I, actually, I actually arrived here in the mid-80s, when this was the Hollywood of football. I mean, this was where all the good players wanted to be, uh, be it Maradona, Platini, etc. Uh, and that is not the, the situation. Now. Maradona and Platini would be going to the Premiership now if they were footballers, we, we, uh, if they were still playing. But um, Italian football, uh, there are many, many reasons uh, why it failed to seize the initiative of the situation they found themselves in. Above all, they took it for granted, well, we're, we're very good at the moment, we don't have to do anything. And one of the things they failed to do, one of the many things they failed to do, was to in, in, invest heavily in infrastructure. Uh, and the most obvious piece of football infrastructure being your own stadium. Because remember, the vast majority of Italian clubs have uh, you know, city council-owned stadiums, so they lose out on a lot of revenue. That was one weakness. Uh, and then they weren't uh, they weren't going to sell it as good as the Premiership has been about selling their game. It's interesting. I do wonder the Premier League as a an English speaking kind of country or something did it help? Like why? I know Spain is probably having a bit of a lull at the moment, but I, I do look I do reflect on it a, a bit with sadness, considering how. You know the the likes of Maldini, Baresi, all these players were total icons to someone even in the west of Ireland when I was a kid. And now, you know, I I I think a lot of football fans would struggle to name players that play in Italy for for a lot of the clubs. Yeah, um, I you know you're right. I, I agree entirely. I just to just say one thing to you about that though. It's a very interesting fact at the moment. There's something like nine different uh, uh, Serie A clubs in the hands of American, US. Uh, investors, buyers, consortium, nine of them. Hmm. Uh, I think it's nine. Uh, it changes all the time. The most recent one was uh, a guy called Pagliuca who bought himself a 43% share in Atalanta uh, just uh, about a month ago. But um, And obviously, these guys, I mean, the Elliott Foundation of AC Milan, uh, the, the, the freaking people at AS Roma, so on, they obviously feel that this is uh, there's some potential here. And I think what they're saying is they're looking at the Italian football. They say, this is one of the great, one of the great uh, footballing uh, countries in the world. This is a huge tradition 
four times World Cup winners. This, 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 surely we can market this. Surely we can make money out of that. Uh, and um, well, it'll be interesting to see how they get on. So far, uh, those who've tried to invest in Italian football in recent times have not made money. Yeah, just just finding that you know what can the Italian clubs sort of um, offer to players in terms of a, a player that has options across Europe? Because like the, obviously there's so much money in the Premier League. Like, what's the funding model in the Serie A in terms of TV money and that relative to the Premier League? Because I presume that's where it's it's struggling a bit as well. No, you're right. I mean, uh, I saw a comparison the other day between uh, the uh, uh, pay levels in Premier, uh, the Premier League and Serie A. And, you know, you're talking about a factor of... It's not that the uh, the best players in the, Premier, in the Premier League get twice as much. They get about three times as much. Mm. Uh, the, the salaries are much bigger and the television revenues are much bigger. There's no question of that. Italy is... Is, is losing out all the time in that. What about the product that we're currently seeing in Serie A, though? Is, is there a sense, though, that yeah, in the, the heyday of, of what Johnny's talking about there on Monday nights, there was, uh, yes, there were moments of magic in it, but the, the, the style of football is more catenaccio, was more defensive-based, whereas now it does feel that even just the, the goal tallies have gone up a bit. There are some high-scoring affairs more at the moment in Serie A. I, I accept that that's not necessarily uh, completely proportional to good quality football, but is that, a, a, I guess, an inkling of hope? Yes, it is. I think uh, Mancini's Italy represents an inkling of hope because it's uh, a reminder that uh, the game still is so strongly eradicated into Italian society. You know, anybody who's ever been to Italy knows that there's really only one sport that, te- that commands all uh, the attention. You buy Gazette della Sport, there's 32 pages, and, you know, 28 of them are about football. Mm. Uh, they... Uh, that that tension means that uh, you're always going to produce very good footballers and uh, when you had an all-Italian team in the Euro- European Championships last summer you saw a lot of good football so I don't think it's I don't think Italy's um, uh, is that end point here they haven't got uh, I think on the contrary there's plenty of I, I understand why the Americans are investing I think there's plenty of room uh, plenty of progress to be made here and I guess what you've got as well is if you're looking at the, the, the Premier League versus Serie A, take their national teams in microcosm. You had them going head to head in a major tournament final last year and, and Italy get the job done. Uh, obviously, that's reading way too much into just one fixture, but there is definitely yeah. a sense that Italy have managed to, to survive any lessening in importance of their national league much better than, uh, than, than other nations have. Well, yeah, but if they don't qualify for the World Cup this summer, bit of a setback. <laughs> yeah, we, we might we might have to to, to rephrase that one. <laughs> yeah, off to, just off the top of my head, there are three youngish Irish players either in Italy yeah. or going to Italy, and I mentioned two of them. The other one is Kevin Zeffi in in Milan. Four is my count. Who's, who's, who am I missing? You got Zeffi and Heffernan as well. Heffernan as well. Sorry, so uh, bo- both of whom were playing for Ireland underage yesterday, actually. Um, what would the two lads? I guess what would the two lads expect in Udine? Is it where Udinese is? Udinese. Well, Udinese is a great site for discovering talent. Uh, I, th- I think it's, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for all three guys, you know. Uh, a lot of... Uh, it hasn't exactly generated a huge amount of interest amongst the fans, but uh, people have pointed out, you know, when Heffern signed for uh, uh, AC Milan, he's the first person to uh, join since Paddy Sloan back in, I think it was, 48. And he was the first oh. Irishman ever to play in Serie A. 
Uh, a guy who, who ended up in Australia, I think he died in Melbourne uh, in 1990. But uh, a, a lot of attention to that. Uh, I noticed that Zephy, he's been here a bit longer. He uh, uh, he got mentioned a bit in dispatches the other day. Uh, the other day, sorry, uh, December mm. scored a hat trick against Verona in an under 17 game. So, I mean, good news. Certain amount of good news. As for Udinese, yeah, uh, Udinese is a good club to have gone to. There's no question of that. And they look after a, a lot of players. You know, somebody like Alexis Sanchez was picked up by them years ago. Uh, and and he, he, he made his birth through to the top level at uh, Udinese. Paddy Sloan played for Udinese as well, of course, uh, between yeah, 49 Paddy and Sloan 50. Did, yeah, Paddy Sloan did, yeah. yeah. You, you always say, of course, when you just found yeah, something for the first time. The, you know, <laughs> of course, according to the Wikipedia that's in front of me. You know, and yeah, I, it just off the top of my head. Yeah, off the top of my head. Brescia as well, I think, for a period of time. You know, yeah. just throwing that out there. You know, maybe Bath City at the end of his career. It's uh, possible, though, that there will be, like, an Irish revival, Paddy, in interest. Yeah. Because, like, I do have such fond memories. But, like, I, when Miles Dungan presented that show, which I presume was just uh, a spit, uh, like a... Uh, basically a copy and paste of what Channel 4 was showing. We didn't have Channel 4 at the time. We had literally two channels. And Italian football was, it was so exotic. But maybe this will enliven Irish interest in Italian football if one of these players starts playing regularly. I hope so. I hope so. It means I'll be travelling up to Milan a bit to see these boys play. Happy days. <laughs> scout, Happy you'd, be, days. you'd be a scout for Stephen Kenny. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, is, there, is there a sense that, um, are, you, are you starting to see, even if you kind of like remove the, the Irish spectacles here for a bit, are you starting to see scouting broaden its horizons a little bit within some of these Italian clubs as well? Or or, or is, it, is this just kind of a bit of a coincidence over the last little while? Well, I think Italian, the, the best Italian clubs uh, like, uh, you know, Juventus Inter, AC Milan, even Udinese. These clubs, and particularly Udinese, actually, these clubs have had a very developed uh, scouting network for a long time now, and they pick up a lot of very good players. <coughs> Most of them do a season. A lot of them do a season in, in Italy, establish themselves, and then move on to the Premier League. Yeah, like for, I suppose for you, do, do, do you think it's as much of an obstacle in that you went over to an alien country in the eighties? Like I've been to Italy several times, but I guess for you know it's it's, it's hardly a, a big jump to imagine living there. But for these Irish players, I mean, there have been so few success stories over there. You're thinking of Liam Brady, basically, in terms of the Irish context. Robbie Keane went over, but like it's been really, really sparse. No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Bang on. It's not an easy country to live in Italy in some ways. Oh, you look at the sun, the, the wine, the whole atmosphere, it must be great. But it's not easy to move into that country. Uh, and uh, Liam Brady's the exception that proves the rule. Liam uh, worked really hard as Italian. He adapted himself and he was a wonderful footballer. Uh, and he became, you know, a, a, an Italian icon, although he, he wouldn't say so himself, but he was. Mm. Uh, um, but, yeah, a young player coming to Italy, he'll find it very, very hard. Mm. Just to finish up then, Paddy, uh, on tonight, uh, I think they're making an exception, are they, for uh, COVID rules at the moment over there? I think our sporting events limited to 75% capacity, but they're, they're allowing uh, Palermo to be, yeah. to be packed out tonight. Yeah, uh, it's not a huge stadium, uh, the Favorite in Palermo, but it's going to be 100%. It's, it's about, I think you have about 35,000 people there. But the reason they picked that is that it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, 
English style stadium is a new stadium that was built. Well, new stadium was built for the 1990 World Cup. That's hardly new, but uh, it's uh, one where you know you don't have a running track around it, uh, and you have uh, you could, should have very good atmosphere uh, and an intimidating atmosphere for the Macedonians. Do you expect them to qualify, Paddy? I expect him to qualify, I mean, in the same way that Mancini does, because although Mancini hasn't played down what is a really awkward situation to find themselves in, given the uh, precedent of Sweden uh, in 2017, but um, he, he just says, Mancini says, says, look, this side is a good team. They know how to play good football. We showed that without any uh, doubt in uh, European Championships last summer, uh, and we can do it again. It's just, uh, you know, and also... He was very worried, as any coaches before a game like this, about missing key players. Um, in fact, it's a pretty strong-looking team. You have, you know, Chiellini looks like he's going to be back. Bonucci isn't ready yet. Chiellini's back. Uh, and you have, you know, the important uh, figures in midfield, uh, uh, Barella, Verratti, uh, Jorgino, and you have... Um, uh, Immobile leading the attack with Insigne on one side and Berardi on the other. So it's a strong team. These are all players who featured in the European Championships and these are all players who've been through this sort of pressure before. Hey, just a fine question for me. Sorry, on the Gazette Zello Sport is still going strong there, is it? It's uh, pink think, pages. Yeah, like we all remember James Richardson. It's it's definitely a personal dream that there be a sports paper in Ireland. I think we had one briefly, <laughs> but uh, Gazette is still going anyway. Oh, absolutely. And it's a great question, too, because uh, if you look at Gazette today, the front page headline, the front page is dominated by one huge headline, which says, Facciamo l'Italia. In other words, let's go out and play like Italy, you know. Mm. It's just like even even like to have a sports paper today for a game like that, like every yeah. day. How cool is that? Like, Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, I guess the good news, Paddy, is that if Italy failed to qualify, I mean, they're pretty good at rugby union all of a sudden. Yeah. That's that's the, 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 the <laughs> mood of the nation swinging, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I tell you, the, uh, the 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 rugby match was greeted with a lot of enthusiasm, as you can imagine. <laughs> and there been a lot of rugby, a lot of pals who uh, follow Italian rugby, play Italian rugby, played for one or two of them played for Italy, and uh, they were over the moon, frankly. Did it feature in the first ten pages of Gazetta on Monday, Sunday? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, it, it got a lot of space, yeah. Right. It was slightly overshadowed by uh, Ferrari going ah. to Formula One uh, uh, Grand Prix this season. What a weekend for Italian sport. Mm. It was a good weekend for Italian sport. And let's hope that the Mancini can prolong it. Paddy Agnew, great stuff as ever. Thanks many for taking the call. Thank you. Cheers. 25 past 8 you're with us here on OTBAM just going to give you another opportunity to win our competition uh, get ready to cheer Ireland on in the TikTok Women's Six Nations to launch this year's campaign we're giving away two tickets to see Ireland take on Wales on this Saturday at quarter to five in the RDS Arena the lucky winners will also be entered into a draw to be with a chance to win an overnight stay in the stunning Intercontinental Hotel on the night of the game to enter tell us what you think the score will be this weekend between Ireland and Wales wherever you're watching this morning's OTBAM just comment on Twitter Twitter, Facebook or YouTube. International Women's Rugby is at the RDS and there's nothing like it. Be part of the action. Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. Um, did you keep your Gazette Dello Sport safe as a souvenir? Um, the, the editions that you managed to pick up? No, I didn't actually. But it, you, when it's, it's, it's lovely to go over to Italy and get an espresso or whatever and just start feeling like you're an Italian and 
become James Richardson for a couple of minutes and buy the paper, even though clearly you can't read it. I mean, you don't understand it Italian, but like, would an Irish, would an Irish Sunday sports per, paid paper work over here? It's it's a question that I've often thought about. Like, it is the dream an Irish mm-hmm. sports where you could have like massive, long investigative breaking stories. But like, would people buy it? Would would it, would they just start taking photos of it and send it online and put it on Twitter? And would do people want to pay for newspapers anymore? Like it's, it's it's really sad that uh, you know you know people just don't buy newspapers anymore. I, I actually think it's 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 alarming that people just get all their news in their phone for free. Um, would an Irish sports paper like the title work nowadays? Like you get it to the sport? Wouldn't that be amazing to have like a like something like the lads in the Times broke about the FEI, something like that that everyone had to buy, but they only bought the paper because there was no other way of getting it. Maybe I'm just being nostalgic, but like the Zetas every day, every day they have a sports paper. Amazing to think. I don't know how they've, I don't know how they've managed in the internet age, but they're obviously still going anyway. Yeah, they do tend to like. I guess is is it helped by the fact that they have a sort of, you know, a, a daily heartbeat of, of content, especially in the off-season with a massive global league. Granted, mm. it's not as broad it once was. But, like, I remember when, when I was in Milan, like, I mean, obviously I saw, saw it there, I had to buy it. Mm. And uh, it was just, like, the constant stream of Donnarumma stories every single day when yeah. he was first on, I think it was, like, 2017, when he was first unhappy at Milan and everybody in the city hated him and everybody was like, this guy, he's going to betray us this summer. I guess he eventually did uh, end up leaving. And it, it, every single day, front page, more more Donnarumma news, more mm. Donnarumma news, and that constant drumbeat of stuff. Not sure is that does that exist here as such? Maybe it does. Like, may, like may, maybe it becomes a, a sort of a, a British perspective, or sorry, an Irish perspective on, on what's happening in in the British leagues potentially. It's just the, the dead zone. Your, your Tuesday morning, your Wednesday morning. What's your front page? You know. Well, that, that, that's it. I don't. I mean, like OTBAM, it was a challenge that you have to have sport every day, and you have to have it every morning. I think OTBAM is managing quite comfortably. Um, could you have like they have Le Keep in France? Mm. Could you have? Like a daily sports paper in Ireland absolutely wouldn't work. But could yeah. you have? Sorry, a, you're saying weekly, of course. Sorry. Could you have a Sunday paper of like big columnists, people who um, would be, be? You'd have uh, no. There'd be hardly anyone on staff. So like because you just can't afford that. So it'd be a, a, a team of freelancers, yeah, um, like yourself, for example, who write um, an article or, or or write like or do an investigative piece. Um, there wouldn't be many match reports because they're all online. So it'd be more like say the Ireland, England, or sorry, the Ireland. Scotland game on Saturday it'd be like some heavyweight analysis of that but your main front page would be like an investigative a breaking news story that changes the sporting landscape I put this to would you it work I don't know uh, like I mean you'd buy it I would 100% yeah. right. the thing is though we work in the game the thing is though you would absolutely I think the quality of Sunday papers in this country is excellent it's and not it's all, though but I, I sometimes pick up the, I, I think sometimes it is I, like, like, well, what do you have Like, so the Sunday Independent right and yeah, the, the Sunday section is excellent the Sunday Independent sports section and the Sunday Times that's basically it really but, if you and I'm not being disparaging towards the tabloids, but you've basically two options. And the Sunday, the yeah, Sunday Times, neither the Sunday. them, the Sunday Independent or the Sunday Times, neither of them really covers the League of Ireland at all. So from my perspective, um, it's it's not great at all on a Sunday right. if if that's my main interest. So my my two main interests will be League of Ireland and horse racing. But like they're a little bit niche, so I'd probably my paper probably collapse within a, a month. Like <laughs> <laughs> basically be screwed. Well, I I think there's eating and drinking in the sports sections of those two papers alone no, on a Sunday. It's two pay. It's two. 
two papers. Like the business yeah, yeah. post, I buy the business post. The business post doesn't have any sport. No, and and that's you not. Might, you might actually buy it for one sports article, which actually maybe mm. pro- proves that there maybe is a market. It's like um, it's you can't you can't have you can't consume your Sunday sport on your phone. Surely, like you need to have a coffee. And a, oh, this would be another deal I'd have: be coffee and a croissant to be a special offer on yeah. the front page because coffee croissant the Sunday newspaper, and it, particularly with the Sunday sports paper, what better way to start the week? Preferably not all over. I, I want this to happen. Like, yeah, I, mean, I, I absolutely want we'll, this to happen. We'll just just for clarity's sake, we just need the, we need the Comer brothers or someone like that to throw infinite money at it because it's not easy for newspaper to, at the moment. But I, I'm, I, I like something tangible on. I like the smell of it. I like reading something. I can't read long articles on my phone. I just find it. I'm constantly browsing. And yeah. it, it tires me out. Or, or on my laptop. Um, and I love the idea of a Sunday sports paper. So if you are out there and you want to back on and my my idea. Um, yeah, we're open to backing. And we're it, obviously happy in our current job as well. But yeah, I, I should say, I'm not <laughs> sure. I, I hope I'm not breaking the fourth wall here with Nathan's just being like, I, I love Owen questioning how can anybody cover sport every single day. And yeah, but like, what else? It's, it's easily done. And it's, it's going on. And I mean, it's exactly, it's the, it's the most important thing. It's easy done. I've just been devil's advocate, I promise. Well, in, in, right. in, in the old days, lastly on this, like, you'd have to employ people on a salary. Whereas now, it's just journalism isn't like that now. People are just pick up extra work in addition to what, what they do, like your new column in the Sunday newspaper. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, John. Uh, it is 8.31 on this uh, Thursday morning. Uh, and just to let you know, on Friday, a special Ireland versus Ukraine fans match is taking place at Home Farm Football Club in aid of the Red Cross. Kickoff is at half past seven. And if you can't attend, you can get a virtual kick uh, for that great cause. Tickets are available at Future Ticketing. You can see it up there online. I'm delighted to welcome uh, John O'Neill of You Boys in Green and Bill Prokopek to the show. John, Bill, you're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Uh, John, first of all, how how did the idea of this match come about? Yeah, so from 2011, a group of us went over to represent Ireland at a Eurofan football tournament in Lviv in Ukraine. So Eurofan is kind of an amateur football tournament for countries around Europe. Level was probably somewhere between high level amateur and more pub team level. I'd say we, we've been somewhere in the middle. Um, but the first time we went over, we only had kind of seven players due to dropouts and things. And, and we thought we wouldn't be able to, to play to let them aside tournament. But the organizers sort of sourced a lot of local Ukrainian players for us. They joined our team with, with Irish grannies, as we joked with them. And um, they kind of went on to, to play for us. And, and because we spent a lot of time with them in the tournament, you know, we, we made great friends with them and um, spent a lot of time with them. And every year we went back, even when we go back with sort of full squads, the Ukrainians would always play with us. And um, so really built up a lot of friendships over, over there over the years, um, back six or seven times um, and at the tournament. And, and I suppose due to that sort of experience and friendships that we built up with, with a lot of Ukrainian people over there um, it's, it's, it's obviously devastating to, to see what's going on at the moment so so we really wanted to do something um, along the lines of how we experienced in Ukraine through, through that uh, football friendship way uh, Bill, you're from Ukraine how long have you been living in Ireland for? 25 years guys I found my new home in here So, so whereabouts are you settled at the moment? Sandy Mount in Dublin very good. And have you, were you over at the uh, at the Eurofans tournaments as well in the past? No, I haven't. But uh, I do play with the last regular here. They always tell me the story about how they gone and what they were doing in Lviv, and they always look forward to go there. Uh, can I ask how have how's the last month been for you personally? Uh, if I say difficult, guys, 
you know, you wake up with um, reading the news, you go to bed with reading the news. It's, it, it's been unusual, let's put it this way, 21st century. Why do you have to sort the differences military ways? You know, so it's, yes, it's been very, very difficult, very emotional. Do you have family over there still, obviously, Bill? Yes, I do. And what have you, is it... Con- thanks God they are safe, they are in the west of Ukraine, and thanks God for the moment, the, the conflict hasn't reached my area yet, but we're trying to help the people on the ground over there, like helping refugees fleeing from the conflict area, you know, acting as a halfway house for people who flee abroad, stuff like that, basically doing whatever we can, whatever's on hands, and, you know... Mm. Is there a plan for family to, to try and get to, to Ireland, Bill? Well, funny enough, my parents and the parents of my wife decided not to leave. Right. And there's nothing I can do about that, you know, so they're just going to stay there. That's uh, their land. They're not willing to leave. A lot of people in Ukraine seem to have that attitude, Bill, where it's like, this is my country, I'm not leaving. Well, let me put it this way. It is a country. You know, people have been living there all life. You know, they build the houses, they raise the kids, they bury their own beloved. You know, why should they leave the ground? Mm. It's, it's more than just a piece of land. I know mm. when you look at military conflict, you think like better to save the people, you know, flee away, you know, go away from the front zone, save yourself and start your new, new life. And I think it's been the, the the exact opposite of that. That has been the attitude that we've kind of seen on in the newspapers and on TV, which has been absolutely incredible. Like I, I presume as well, John, from your perspective, having been. Be, be, sorry, go ahead. We've we've just uh, lost Bill there for a sec, but John, I was just going to uh, put it to you that I presume, having been over to Lviv quite a few times. You would have made quite a few Ukrainian friends, a few Ukrainian contacts who are now, I guess, immersed in, in everything at the moment. Yeah, we did. And uh, actually, a week before the war started, I got a text from, from, from one of the lads over there looking to organize um, a fan match ahead of the Ireland-Ukraine senior match, which is due to go to head in, um, in June in Lviv, which obviously won't, won't be happening there, um, there now. But now to see him on kind of social media getting sort of armoured up, getting trainer, literally going to war, uh, like all, all males have to do, it just really drive it home when somebody, like, I mean, that's effectively our friends over there, we, we could go over there whenever we want and, and, and meet up with several of them. And to see you kind of effectively your friends going through what they're going, it's just, it, 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 it really brings it home um, how, how bad it is, you know, um, and, and, and the kind of seriousness of all of us and, and the closeness to it. I mean, it, it is Europe, I know it's lo- slightly outside the EU, but um, they're, they're very close, uh, sort of culturally and everything, um, which, which probably a lot of people might not appreciate. I mean, it, it was our first time to go to Ukraine. The only reason we went was because of this tournament, and we wouldn't have had the experience um, of that over there without the tournament. So when you go there, like the they're you know, the sense of humor is, is a very similar. The Irish, very friendly, very welcoming, very nice city over there. Um, so yeah, it's it's devastating to see what they're all going through and the individuals we met what they're going through as well so hopefully tomorrow night we can um, raise some funds for that and, and also sort of use it as, as an integration event for, for the Ukrainian community that are already here and, and you know, the community that will be here because 
we're going to be taking in a lot more Ukrainians here, I think, in, in the near future. N- nostalgia has been a bit of a theme on the show uh, this morning, John, but uh, it's also the opportunity for football fans to go back to Whitehall if they haven't been there since maybe the home farm days or uh, the days when Whitehall regularly had crowds at games. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, there, there's no League of Ireland on in, in Dublin tomorrow night. There's no Premier Division on at all. So uh, it's a nice little ground. I was there the other night for, for the, um, the amateur match against the under-20s. Under it's a lovely ground. We've got um, we've got some Ukrainian and Irish singers singing the national anthem before the game as well, and um, they'll also be singing songs in the bars afterwards. Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland will be there, possibly a couple of words. The Lower Mayor of Dublin will be there, and um, you know, anyone wants to be kids, we'll kind of have tea, coffee, talk shop sales. We'll all sort of funds going to Red Cross, and then we, we, the bars will be open from from six and. Um, Irish band Catalpa will be there. I think they're kind of a good Irish rebel band. They'll be playing straight after the match. And we have a sort of Ukrainian uh, lady singer who's going to sing a couple of songs in between them as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping to, to attract as many as we can. We have about 500 tickets sold out, out of 2,000 capacity. So uh, we, we'd like to get a few more down um, tomorrow night if we can. Yeah, and by all accounts, one of the best points of playing in Dublin in the Whitehall Bar. Oh yeah, yeah, and two bars as well. Other selections of beer. Been down there a few nights. Only on on the tea and coffee, but I'm, I'm looking forward to um, sampling the points there. Meant to be good. Uh, Bill, can I just finish up just by asking you just about the importance of games like this and what you're hoping uh, will come out of this? Because I guess it's important for, I guess, from an Irish context alone, just to to keep these things happening to 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 keep this conversation going to keep raising funds for the Red Cross in, in this particular instance? Well, of course, let's, in this particular instance, of course, we want to raise as much money as we can for the Ukrainians to help them over there on the ground. But we also want to shake the wave across the Europe and send the message to our friends, footballers, to the Europe, you know, to keep the thing gone. Because in all reality, in the, your normal daily routine, you know, bringing a kids to school, you know, making a ramp, going to work, look after your parents. You know, the interest is going to die. And the moment the interest dies, we are going to have a problem. Because it's our, the maths are very, very simple. 140 million country versus 40 million. So without the aid that we're getting from the old Western world, you know, we're not going to be able to actually fight them back. That's so that's, that's so, sorry, Bill. That's such a. So I think like f- coming from a Ukrainian voice, that's so important because like Syria was an absolute catastrophe, but it was quickly forgotten about. Is that a concern that you know um, people just move on with their lives and they forget about Ukraine? Well, of course. Let's. Like, I mean, we all have a daily routine. You know, mm. you still have to pay your mortgage. You still have to do other things. You know, I mean, the amount of the information in the media. You know, it's just going to burn you out, you know, burn your brain. So you're going to choose on one stage to just turn off the radio or TV, you know, and not listen to that, you know, because you still have to get on with your life. You still have to look after your families. So that's why we're actually trying to keep this gone as long as it's possible, because that's the only way that we can actually win in this conflict. Like Ukrainians are going to fight. They're only going to fight to the last. But you see, it's such important for us to know that you guys are helping us to keep our kids, our women, our mothers safe. So then on the ground, we can do whatever we have. Absolutely. Well, it's a Friday night. Kickoff is at half past seven at Home Farm. It is a special Ireland versus Ukraine fans match. It's taking place, as I said, Home Farm Football Club in aid of the Red Cross. If you can't... 
Sorry, sorry I'm just a, um, um, YBIG.ie is up for tickets on, please, if anyone uh, can, can, can log on there. Please. Brilliant. YB, uh, YBIG.ie. Yeah. Nice one. You've been listening to John O'Neill and Bill Prokopek over the last little while. Bill and John, thanks, Billy, for joining us. Thanks. Thanks. How are you? Cheers. And you can get uh, virtual tickets as well if you can't actually attend that on the night. Right. It is uh, 8.42. You're with us here on OTBAM. It's brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. John Duggan, good morning. Owen and Johnny, how are we doing? Yeah, very well. Any crack? Not really. You're, he's counting down to the golf. Virtual insanity begins tonight, does it? Begins at 10.45 this morning mm. in oh. the Dominican Republic. The Coladas, Punta Cana and Resort and Club Championship, which I'm sure everybody will be glued to on their internet. Mm. <laughs> yeah. no, so Four days of golf in the Dominican Republic. Who well, needs the match play? Uh, who needs a match play that lottery that it is but the guys was a great story about the match plays that Seamus Power won his match last night 5-4 over Sung Jai Im and he only needs to finish first or second in his group to book his place at the Masters for the first ever time he needs to be in that position by Monday in the top 50 in the world he is 48 at the moment I think he's going to do it and for a guy who was 429th in the world at the end of 2020 it is a fantastic story for Seamus Power to be driving up Magnolia Lane and having that privileged position of being an Irish player at the Masters not that many of them have had that privilege so I don't know about you guys but it's the one it's at the top of my bucket list desire in sports is to get to Augusta mm. where would yours be on? Oof. NBA Finals Owen would that would be amazing you'd want to get there soon you'd want LeBron to get to an NBA Finals and see him um, more than anything else I was I'd, um, I was in around Atlanta when the Masters was on one time and I forgot it was on to be honest when we were planning our uh, trip so we were like ah oh, let's just go to Texas instead rather than uh, rather than going to, to Georgia because why would you go to Georgia and then the day before our flight watching the first day of the Masters and it's like oh shite we could have just gone there instead tickets are probably hard to get though John are they? Oh they're Impossible, very difficult yeah. to get they're yeah. 10 grand have you got 10 grand in your okay, back no, pocket? I did not have that do you know the uh, way it, do it, if you, have you watched Succession right? Yeah. So if you watch Succession, it's kind of like rich American people who've no idea that the climate is burning and they live these lives that are totally aloof from everything and they're extremely horrible people. Would an American golf event not be just exactly that? Uh, like, but I think it's almost the way they lean into this sort of uh, patriotism, a, a, a kind of walled community aspect that kind of Augusta is like. You know, right. no no phones, no no pictures. You know, your your pimento cheese sandwich, which still costs one dollar or whatever it is because it's nineteen seventies prices and uh, it's the cheapest pint of the planet possibly. Okay, vulgarity is not allowed at the Masters. If you run, you're in trouble. So they've got security guards. You can't run, as Owen said, you can't use your phone. You've got to go to pay phones. You can't take photos unless it's at a practice round. You can't bring you know, a camera onto the course during, during play. It's their rules. Now, it's very southern, in inverted commas, if people understand what I mean. Um, but it's their club. And Who like, goes, JD, then? Rich Americans. <laughs> yeah, wearing <laughs> Kerry jerseys. Well, there's, there's so many... Like, they had... I think they opened the lot. They opened the kind of the, the ticketing at about two thousand. A lot of it's come down from families, mm. passed on through families, and like the club badges, Johnny, are quite cheap actually. Um, and they've been going back to the early seventies when it wasn't that cool a thing to be getting into. But if you want to go in the secondary market, it's ten thousand for yeah. a ticket. If you want to go into Stub Pub or whatever, probably have to ask the Coleman brothers about that as well. <laughs> can we get a, can we get a donation to send Johnny Ward to Augusta for our daily um, John, Johnny, sports paper weekly Johnny weekly. Ward would be the Hunter S. Thompson yeah yeah he'd be doing the Rolling Stone style yeah. Jack Kerouac type taping it or something yeah like, that would yeah. be the kind of take yeah. um, 
Sadly, Hunter S. Thompson went to the Rumble in the Jungle and didn't make the fight. Ah, yeah. Ah, there you go. Maybe the fight was incidental to the story. No, I think it, part, going to the fight, I think, was a big mm. part of what he was meant to be doing out there. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. There was Hunter S. Thompson. He came back with, a, I think, a, an elephant tusk. Uh, we're going on a massive tangent here but really the elephant tusk in the room that like, was <laughs> to like literally have the elephant tusk in the room as people come over it's about, like I mean it's just amazing how journalists have got less rich isn't it I mean the amount of rich bandwagoners who uh, mm. got on that got on that alley junket yeah, was, yeah. Uh, was sensational I'm not sure you really get it how, how would the rumble in the jungle be covered today is a question that uh, sport washing still going on though still, sport washing still going that on that was the first True. example of it was yeah. in Bambuzu and Zaire in mm. 1974 um, they got 5 million each I think and Don King was involved with uh, Ali and Foreman. Wow. But uh, even back then, how strange it was. I remember David Frost being out there getting the first interview with Ali when he won because he wasn't obviously expected to win. Do you remember it happening? You're, no, because well, no, it was four years time. before I was just, I was make, just making sure. Just making sure. I, I know I'm ageing, but not that quickly. We're all ageing. I mean, it's just that's how it is. You, 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 you're born, you die, you age in between. And, you know, you can't fight that, J.D. Okay. All the moisturiser in the world isn't going to... It might do. You, you should bring uh, that on a placard to the Masters. Yeah, you, you're born, you die, go to Augusta <laughs> in between or something. Yeah. <laughs> Not for 10 grand, though, unless the Comer brothers pay for it. Um, John Duggan, where are we starting? Well, we're starting there with Seamus Power winning his match yesterday. So we're playing Patrick Cantlay today. Shane Larry, lads, up against uh, Eric Van Royen today after he lost to Harold Varner the third. Shane's got a bit of work to do because it's only the winners of these brackets, these 16 brackets that go through to the last 16 of the 64 players in the match play in Austin and Texas. Greg McDowell is in that Dominican Republic tournament the Corrales Championship there's also action in Qatar and Al Carney's level par with uh, Cormac Sharvin two over par on day one of Qatar Masters Jonathan Colwell has just teed off Pablo Larrazabal of Spain leads on seven under par not a lot going on really folks in sport we're all building up to Saturday and OTB Saturday and our football discussion ahead of Ireland Belgium at five o'clock the under 19s lost 3-1 to England last night in Walsall the under 17s the women's team drew one all with Slovakia Wales tonight against Austria in a World Cup playoff semi-final. That'll be interesting. Gareth Bale in the frame to play. Uh, Poland playing Turkey. Uh, Italy taking on North Macedonia. And Sweden facing the Czech Republic. So for the right there to play Poland. As we know, Russia being kicked out. We saw Russia trolling everybody by bidding for this Euros thing yesterday. That's exactly what it is. uh, Just completely offensive stuff, really. Um, the Russian Football Union has not been banned by UEFA we know that the clubs and the National Association have been suspended but the, uh, the FA is still in existence as it were in the, in the ecosystem um, that's really what's going on we got racing at Cork today we saw the Pogba stuff I'm sure you've dealt with in the papers but uh, it's, it's a strange week because we know um, it's going to get very busy now with the, with the Gaelic season beginning to kick into significant gear and obviously we've got a title race now in the Premier League I was just thinking like Liverpool and City a point between them they meet in the Cup semi-finals they're both gone for the Champions League and they both play on Saturday week I think once you get to April that's really going to hot up lads the Euro 28, that'd be pretty cool for you, I presume. Like uh, Some people are kind of ambivalent about it because they're saying, oh, we need to invest in facilities. So I think it'd be great. What do you mean by cool for me? Like, as in, as, as a Dublin-based football fan. Do you know um, what I mean? To have, are, you, are you ambivalent towards it? Um, it's, I don't know whether I've been brainwashed by yourself and Dan over recent uh, years, but um, I, I really am coming around to this facilities argument. Mm. I'm much more in tune with that than I would have been. Um, I, I would have generally always looked initially to the Premier League and because I'm really interested in the quality of the football but if say we don't qualify and you know it would mm. be harder not to qualify than qualify when you go back to Euro 88 when there's only 8 teams there could be 32 teams in this it would be harder not to qualify 
and whoever the manager is then if they don't qualify well um, these things come and go very quickly the only thing I know from going to a tournament now these things come and go very quickly it's, it's, it's going to be a great build up it'll be a great day and then it's over and like it's, it is literally you plant the circus in the cities and then they roll up the tents and they're gone what's the legacy mm. so there has to be a legacy for this kind of thing and that's what I uh, having been to Rio and seen no legacy of just white elephant stadiums and poor favelas and then being to Russia and seeing them destroy their legacy like they, they built this World Cup and they all think well, no, I don't think it necessarily was completely linked to what's going on now I don't think this was a grand plan I just think Putin's gone mad Mm. As, uh, even though he was already evil, he's already he's actually gone I completely w- worse. So they they dist- like they built that stadium in Kaliningrad for what for nothing mm. now, um, and the Luzhniki, which ha- has a hist- history with the Olympic Games and hosted the final, is now being used for propaganda rallies. That's the legacy. So there's got to be a, a connection between anything you do as a host country and what the the link will be for the reason you have it here. The reason you have it here is football. Yeah. Hopefully, Caseman Park. Like genuinely, I'd love. But to But the that. loyalists of uh, Linfield fans going to Caseman Park for a Euros game mm, wouldn't it be beautiful. It would be beautiful. Yeah, if you look at it possibly. Yeah, Caseman doesn't exist is uh, an important thing that I think maybe we've kind of brushed over on this um, this sort of notion that everything's going to be fine and uh, the GEA can can help us out here from the IFA's perspective. Just having um, having thought about it the last couple of days, I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves on that front. I think there's. There's twists to come in that story over the next little while because the only thing that we've got in that story over the last seven, eight years are very frustrating twists. And I, I don't think that, I don't think it's going to be as easy as, oh, the Euros are in town. Let's get the stadium built. Yes, well, I, it's accept, very complex, I accept yeah. that the, the, the power might, there might be more power behind it all. But, um, well, the, the Northern elections in May are probably the most fascinating in my lifetime in terms of its, its election fame is, is going to probably top the poll. Mm. Um, but whatever government forms out of that will be very interesting going forward because casement has the potential to really, in a strange way, bring people together or, or the opposite. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, but to bring it together for a Euro 28 tournament would be, it, it's, it's be so contradictory, but so amazing in some way. In there there is then, because like, there is then also the notion here as well that so if, if Casement was to bring people together, is that not also just, you know, football fans going to Casement to watch a game of soccer and then you roll up the tent? And then they leave. No, but then, then the you have casement. Then the division six. No, I accept that completely. Mm. But bringing people casement has a legacy, has an obvious, an obvious Arab, legacy, I, and it's the I only stadium that. we're going to build. But in ter- in terms thing. of like bringing people together and stuff like that, mm. that that sort of because uh, like that is sometimes the thing that it gets spoken about with the Olympics. You know, this great gathering of people and, and everybody is one family and all that. I, I completely think that once these sports events finish, it's back to, well, to, to it'll be the, the first over. time a lot of Protestants will be in any Gaelic games ground at all Like, and that's just sadly the fact and maybe some of them might say this was great actually we got a great welcome from the locals maybe we'll watch a hurling game here because they'd, they'd love the hurling if they'd actually go but you know we live in a strange society yeah and maybe it's just a very negative way of looking at it from my perspective but I just think like the stadium doesn't even exist now and it's like let's, well, the, the, let's the, say the stadium doesn't exist but it, it's it's the, the, the ground is there the yeah. field is there it just needs to be built it needs a yeah. bit of good will yeah bring yeah. it on yeah no I, I, I hope you're right I hope you're right for sure uh, John Duggan All right, stuff. it is uh, 8.53 going to give you a bit of a flavour of uh, the sports page of this morning you might show up otbsports.com and you can see Ireland would benefit from hosting another 21 tournament more than hosting the Euros uh, Dan Sheehan has leapfrogged Kelleher says Keith Wood Anthony Barry says leaving Ireland for Belgium job was a no-brainer Russian FA official highly likely country will host Euro 2032 
And five Ireland players with plenty of decaying during the international break as we uh, get uh, behind the curtain into the sound booth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that could have gone badly wrong. Uh, no, Badly Ori, as I used to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Irish Daily Mail, out in the cold. Randolph raps Ireland boss for squad snub. And McCabe and her gunners keep Eurodream alive. They drew one all with Fulzburg last night in the Champions League. And Sexton will go on New Zealand tour, says Ronan O'Gara. The back of the London Times. Uh, brazen bid by Russia to hijack Euros, writes Martin Ziegler. Got a photograph there of Ashley Barty, who retired at the age of 25. Jones fails by RFU's measure. This is an interesting one by Will Kelleher. Eddie Jones has fallen short of the performance criteria set out for his England team. After a second successive nation, six nations in which they only won two of their five matches, the Union said that they took strong, positive steps, showing solid progress. But it has emerged that he has actually missed their target for success stated as England teams winning 80% of their matches. So that was what the target was. What they actually achieved was 62.5% of their matches. So the RFU are backing him, saying he's making strong progress, but he's actually falling short of his own targets, which is uh, an interesting one. Uh, Back of the Irish Daily Star is, that's a bid much. UEFA war in Russia over Euro 2028. We've got the Daily Telegraph here which is Barty there. Bye-bye Barty is the headline. Russia stunned as world number one quits. Uh, Tennis stunned as world number one quits. And Russia's Euro 2028 hijack uh, sparks fury. Uh, We'll get to the rest of the sports pages in just a moment because uh, Ross Hamilton is back with us on the show. He's an independent rugby performance analyst working with BT Sport and he's also formerly worked with Saracens and England as an analyst as well. Ross, good morning to you. Good morning. Well, can I just ask, first of all, when you're looking at the statistics and trying to, uh, I guess get a picture of where Ireland are at at the end of this year's Six Nations what did the stats tell us about Ireland's style of play? Yeah they're really clear for me which I really like both France and Ireland for me had really clear distinct styles that they both stuck to everybody knew what they were about very different as well from one to the other whereas England and other teams didn't really have anything to hang your hat on and you couldn't really tell what they were doing necessarily So Ireland's was huge. And Ireland, uh, just sort of from the top for me, is all about pressure. Their own pressure that they can exert on their opposition and limiting pressure that they receive from their opposition in defence. So I've got a whole range of stats that sort of can take us through sort of from start to finish, their sort of style of play and how it all links and how it all flows through. Um, So there's a fair bit. I'll try and sort of keep it fairly brief. But Ireland averaged the most amount of possession time in the whole competition, had the most carries, made the most metres, the most breaks, the second most defenders beaten and offloads, the most passes. But one thing that's changed about Ireland in this sort of new regime under Andy Farrell for me is they also made the most mistakes. So I think they were happy to keep the ball, play with it as much as they could, put pressure on their opposition. If they made a mistake that's okay because they have so much possession and ball in the first place and they'll just get it again and they'll just go again. And I think that's very different from a Joe Schmidt era. To follow on from that, something that's been talked about so much in this Six Nations, including from myself, and we did this before, is is ruck speed. And ruck speed is so important because it maximises that pressure on the opposition. When you have a ruck, you have to get back on side. And if you can't do that in time, your defence is then disorganised and the attack has opportunities to find the space. So the quicker your ruck speed could be, the more disorganisation in the defence and the more opportunities you're likely to be able to capitalise on. Ireland had the most average rucks per game with over 100. The still high success rate still, so they're clearing out the most and winning the most, but they also have the fastest average ruck speed of 2.88 seconds per ruck. 
and the most under three seconds in the whole competition. Right. So they were incredibly effective at clearing the ball out and maximising on that disorganisation in the defence. That's really interesting. Can I ask, Ross, just something you mentioned there in terms of um, possession time. It, it did feel a couple of years ago the conversation around rugby and data was uh, less possession is, is, is more success. I, I know I've oversimplified that uh, way too, I put way too fine a point on it. Has that changed now? Uh, I think it's relevant to each team and that's exactly the, the correct point if you're talking about France. France wanted to play without the ball. They've got Sean Edwards as their defensive coach. They back their defence so they kicked the ball the most in the whole competition. So they wanted to play without it, put the ball in the right areas to, to gain their territory, back their defence and then capitalise on mistakes. That was their style. It won them the Grand Slam. It's, it's the style of many other teams as well, domestically and in European and international rugby as well. But Ireland seemed to be doing something different. And it's very much like an Exeter. When Exeter won the double in the English Premiership and the European Cup, they keep hold of the ball and they want to play with it and they'll pressure you. And it's exactly the same as Ireland. So two distinct styles. And you, I guess you can choose sort of which one suits your team best. This one seems to suit Ireland and it's certainly got them some decent level of results. In terms of the, the energy expended here, like what's the, the pros and cons of two contrasting uh, styles here between France and Ireland? Yeah, so I mean, France, I guess their their mantra is sort of um, mitigating risks and they try and score immediately. They score 10 tries in two phases in the championship. So they will put pressure on you, get in the right areas and when they get the ball, they'll strike and they'll strike straight away, which is great and they can do that and they did do that. I guess the risk of that is if you don't, you're constantly giving the ball away to your opposition. And if you can't pressurise them enough, you're giving them opportunities. We did see this, obviously, France beat Ireland, but... It was a very close game. Both teams didn't necessarily play as well as they have done the rest of the tournament. They probably cancelled each other out a bit. Whereas Ireland sort of take everything to, into their own hands. They have control of the ball. They have control of the possession. And they are trying to put pressure on you in attack rather than in defence, which I guess is the key difference. Both both fair, both relevant styles, both both successful styles. It just sort of depends on your team and the players you have and uh, and the sort of culture and, and style that you want to play. Well, on, on that then, so how important is the out-half to Ireland's system in terms of, you know, we spoke about it yesterday, that making that gradual change away from Sexton as he gets older. How much is the out-half part of that whole system? Well, yeah, huge for me. I mean, perhaps even more so would be the, you know, Jamison Gibson Park playing a, a more... Um, integral role this Six Nations that he started every game, I believe, um, that his speed to the breakdown is obviously linked. There's so much involved in that. There's the ball carry in the first place, the presentation, the clear out, and then the nine or the first arriver to play the ball away. I think it's that speed in that instance from the nine, which is the most important factor for Ireland, certainly from the stats. Johnny Sexton, I think, can still sit there and control the game. Being the age he is, he's still the best 10 that Ireland have. Um, as that changes, as he gets older and older, then maybe that might become a factor. But for me, it's it's the role of the nine, everybody inside him, which gives him the time and space. He doesn't necessarily have to be quick himself. He has he has very quick speed of thought, um, and that's a, that's an important factor. Once he has the disorganisation that was created by the players around him. Can I ask that about uh, red zone efficiency? Because that's the, the next thing we wanted to touch on here. The, I presume the number of mistakes that you're talking about with Ireland does bring that efficiency down. Uh, they were the best in the tournament. Right. So whether it did or not, th- that might they might have been even better. I do think as okay. well, obviously, the Italy game has to come into some consideration that those stats inflated Ireland a little bit. So that they were top. So they had the most entries into the red zone. 
averaging over 12 a game. They averaged the most phases whilst they were in there. So that links into their pressure game that they wanted to keep hold of the ball and just sort of batter the door down. They averaged over 30 phases per game in the opposition red zone. And then their efficiency, which is uh, measured as points per entry, was 2.66. So again, as an average across the whole tournament, that is really good return, averaging nearly three points for every time you get into there. That was first as well. So that is a huge factor in terms of them converting everything that they've created. Your quick ruck speed, your carries, your meters, your breaks is fantastic. It creates the opportunity in the first place, but then you've got to go and convert that. And then Un Island did that. Their efficiency was fantastic. When you go into the red zone, it even steps up a level and they did manage to come away with points. One question uh, I think every Irish person had after the France game was around Ireland's decision uh, to go for the post rather than the corner when they were within uh, seven points. It was six points, I think, at, at the time. Um, is there is rugby moving towards a place where it's getting like the NFL, where there are going to be uh, it's going to be an analytics based decision when it comes to taking those relevant points? Is there a, or basically what I'm asking? Is it getting to a point where there's a right or wrong answer to these sort of debates? Uh, right or wrong, perhaps, is really tough, but I guess you can be guided by the stats and by the outputs that, that your previous experience have. Um, I guess if I, I link that in uh, is whether that's worth going to the corner and trying to get a try, If even if you convert it, you're going to get seven points. If you've got a guaranteed three points pretty much in front of the post, you only need to score twice, two penalties for every sort of converted try to make that a worthwhile payoff. So effectively, also what you're saying is you've got to score one in two times that you go to the line out to make that payoff just about worth it. You know, you could score mm-hmm. five, you could score seven. Well, so, the, 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 the shot conversion like percentages that come up on the screen now. Can you can you tell? Would it be possible for somebody to tell in a in a situation where it's not a certain three points? Well, what's the actual? What's the op- What are my two options here, and which one is best? Yeah, in terms of the goal kicking percentages that came up on screen during during the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's interesting. It's not very accurate, if I'm honest. It's not very accurate to the place of the pitch where those players are. It's historical for every single player who's ever kicked, so it's not right. necessarily relevant to that guy. But it might be something that that comes into factor. I would have I would have thought they would have done all that previously rather than um, during the game. A kicker like Johnny Sexton of the experience will know sort of you know is this a touch and go? Is this the fifty fifty kind of kick? And that will that will have a factor of their decision making, of course. And I think that would come from the experience on the pitch and perhaps some preparation before of what's most worth it. Again, I'm linking this into a Premiership in Exeter just because mm. they were so successful. They kicked to the corner every single time, knowing the fact that they would probably score on average at least once every two times they did that. Therefore, they would average more points than if they took the penalty. So it's just down to your team and whether you, you have that skill set, I suppose. Well, that brings us very nicely on to the final point and the sources of tries, because your uh, data is saying that there were fewer tries from malls. Is that because people are going to the corner less? Is that because of new rules? Is it, what, what, what are you seeing here? Yeah, so the actual stat is there were zero tries scored from right. Wolves in the entire competition. That's never happened before. And just to contextualise that, there were a couple, there were three from all teams where they broke off from Moors and scored. So Josh van der Fleer versus France went through. Dan Sheehan broke off for one. There were two from Ireland. There was one from a Scotland player, I believe. Um, but they don't necessarily count as the mall going over. I think by them breaking off, they realised that the mall was stopped and it wasn't going anywhere. They needed to do something else. And, and yeah, great, they got the try. But not a single mall went over the try line, nor was it given a penalty try. 
in the entire competition, which is which is amazing to me. Never seen something like that before. And when we talk about power game and percentage of choice and options and going to the try, going to the corner for sort of a pushover, it almost renders that a bit uh, pointless because nobody got over the try line at all from a mall. But what that says to me is that the way that teams are going about their tries has changed. I definitely think the the law change with being held up over the line affects this, that it's actually such a big risk. I'm not entirely sure about it. I don't think it necessarily rewards the attacking team. I get the point that they're trying to make it more expansive, which it has, and I'll come on to that in a second. But I think it's it's too damning if you get over the opposition try line, which is a huge thing, and just you're held up, mm. that you then have to start again from you know your 40-meter line with a kick out. Um, but it certainly has made a fact. It certainly has addressed and changed how teams go about this. So much so as well, another stat, we can we can match um, or look at how many tries came from a set piece in total. So line out scrums and also restarts are included in that or anything broken play. So turnovers, kick receipts, counters, anything like that would be broken play. And for the first time in the Six Nations history, more tries were scored from broken play than set piece. Right. So it's gone 52% of broken play and 48 to set piece. And I know that's a very small change, but it's the first time it's even gone that way. Very typically, you would see teams and leagues and competitions having somewhere like 65% tries from set piece. So actually flip so much is a huge, huge change. And I really think it's a, a measure of the teams who are changing their styles. And on that, just lastly, I'll just mention, so only England and Ireland scored more tries from their set piece in the whole competition. Everybody else, every other team backed their broken play attack, utilised the sort of disorganisation that was created already and scores straight away from broken field. Only Ireland and England used that set piece to score majority of their tries. That's really interesting. So like, well, I guess that just really whets the appetite for Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere going toe-to-toe this summer then when traditionally we would have been like two very contrasting styles. The game has changed up here quite a bit. The game definitely has, definitely has. I think, again, the laws have made a big factor in that, but it may just be the evolution of rugby. The mm. teams are doing this at Harlequins in the Premiership last season, New Zealand forever, um, are, are showing that you can do this. You can play this style of rugby. You can take the lead. You can have control of the ball and, and put your attack onto the opposition and still win games. You know, for a long time, yes, that was great and it looked great and everyone's talking about super rugby touch and, you know, all this kind of thing. But it's also very successful. It's proven to be very successful. France are the most attacking open team of the competition they won a grand slam so it's shown that it can be done and I think yeah the, the change is here Ross really interesting stuff as ever thanks a million for being with us pleasure thanks cheers Ross Hamilton there on the line he's an independent rugby performance analyst working with BT Sport and he's also a former Saracens and England analyst um, that's pretty fascinating stuff yeah um, absolutely like that is it, it, it's, it's mad now even when you look at the, the players with all the GPS stuff and that and uh, the you know, you'd always hope that um, kind of sport holds on to the, the intuition of the coach and looking at somebody that's not all about the the, the figures and the numbers. But uh, at the same time, maybe rugby slightly in its infancy in terms of this stuff. Like that's really fascinating stats. Sir. Yeah, and I, I guess like what I could see is so, so from a moment like that. Say if we go back to the France example because it's a very very good one. It's a good example because yeah. I think it would have divided people right at the time. And in hindsight, fair enough, it was probably the wrong call. But like at the time, what was the right call? It's the, it's the most equatable situation we've had to like say like a late playoffs game call in the mm. NFL where it's like they should have gone for the extra point mm. or they should have gone for them fourth down or whatever. That I wonder are we going to get to a stage where <laughs> uh, I don't know the 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 backup out half or the kicking coach is. 
has an earpiece in from the analytics guy and then it's a, running in 51% A 49% B so yeah go, yeah I, I won't, I'm, I'm not sure it's it's obviously a completely different sport way way more open it's not it's not um, a set of downs and you're not off the pitch for half it's where, where you're constantly being fed information so it is totally different but really really interesting his point's all about France being like basically kicking the ball a lot and like it's it's it, it, I, I love watching France so it's mad yeah. that you can marry that sort of pragmatism with their their own style of DuPont or whatever when they actually have it for sure um, it is uh, 10 past 9 you're with us here on OTBAM it's brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day here's what we've got on OTB Sports Radio today from 1 o'clock OTB Gold is Cora Staunton leaders questions from 3 o'clock 4 o'clock is the Women's Six Nation show coming your way live 6 o'clock OTB Gold Brian O'Driscoll in conversation with Ethan Asewa and then from 7 o'clock as ever off the ball is live on your radio we're back right after these talking Gaelic football with Oshin McConville OTB AM OK, at the launch of the 2022 Airgrid GAA Football Under-20 All-Ireland Championship was our MA Under-20 manager, Oshin McConville. Airgrid Ireland's grid operator is charged with delivering a cleaner energy future for Ireland. Uh, coach with our MA, uh, how are you finding the role, Oshin? Yeah, enjoying it. Um, it's, it's much different, I suppose. It's, it's, it's nice being back involved with a, with a county setup, I suppose, done a good bit of club stuff, uh, also college um, stuff. So um, to be back involved with, you just look at, there's a, there's a certain step up and there's, the players really, really want to be there. You know, there's, there's, um, everybody's there, you know, 45 minutes before. Some of the players are there before you arrive and train and stuff. So um, there's, there's a real, professional attitude to what is obviously an, an amateur sport but you can see just that that these guys really want to get to the next level Is that an RMA specific thing at the moment Oshin or is that just with under 20s in general? I think it's with under 20s in general and <clears throat> anybody who looks at you know the physique and the conditioning of the under 20s and think back to Roscommon and Awfully last year and think about you know the, the physical demands that were on uh, both those teams and what was a game played at an absolutely ferocious pace. But um, think about you know how these lads are going to progress into uh, into the senior ranks, and it's it's a uh, it's pretty good experience as far as that's concerned. And I think you know the fact that they're involved in that county setup in in, in the first place, but also. Uh, football-wise and getting used to being able to take information on board and all that sort of thing. So it is a good springboard for anybody who wants to play um, inter-county football. I, don't, I certainly don't think that's just an AMA. I think that's that's a, uh, that's across a lot of counties. What's your role as training yourself? I take the majority of the on-field stuff. Um, Barry O'Hagan, um, who's along with me, he, uh, he does a lot of the logistics organisation and He's a very organised individual, and I'm probably the, the counter to that. <laughs> I do I do all the pit, the majority, not all the pitch stuff, the majority of pitch stuff, um, and that's what I like doing. That's that's the thing I've had a, a hunger to do for for um, some time. As much as you know, management is is the position you find yourself in, at the, even at club level. For myself, you know, I'm, I'm obviously within a scheme and and Mullen, and I find myself in there as manager. Uh, the part I really enjoy is like I, I, I know you hear this all the time but I was actually listening to an interview with David Moyes the other day and he said you know what's the best part of the job and he says undoubtedly when you're just out of the pitch and 
you could you know you just dealing purely with football issues when you're out there, and that's that's you know the the thing that that, that I like doing, and I suppose the, the people who who like coaching just like to be out there for that hour and a half or whatever it is, and try and get those things across, and try and bring them into the weekend, and hope that. Um, some of those things are, are taken more and, and you can see some semblance of improvement in, in uh, week to week. How much has what you do on the training ground changed from when you first started coaching? I guess your first job was with Cross McGlenn, I guess, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, well, I've, I suppose I've been, I had college experience for the last maybe 11 or 12 years. So sure. And I went into that quite early, but again, it's a, it's a, it's completely different. It's it's a lot more part time for players and that. So, um, how has my coaching changed? I suppose it's more game specific than it ever has been because you don't need to waste that much time anymore with uh, you know, with the with the conditioning side of things. I mean, the majority of players are on you know, ready to train. And that's some testament to those players, like, you know, in fairness, like I, I, I remember and could have even been one of those guys at times where, you know, you come back after a winter break and there's a bit of work to be done in order to get you to even to the level that you're able to train. And, uh, and just, so we're not wasting a huge amount of time on that anymore, which is, which is brilliant. So you can be a lot more game specific. So, uh, the, the three areas of the game what's probably our most important is you know the, the restarts or the kickouts the, the the transition and the finishing end of things so you know they're the three areas that you mainly work on but we try and if you have the opportunity and you have the time you can break that down even further but very much game specific for me from uh, f- from probably we started and we started you know late December so Probably since since the middle of January, it's been very game specific and trying to get these guys to uh, to think about uh, playing in a slightly different way than they've been accustomed to. I'll pick one specific tactical question out of the air. Then your goalkeeper is he going to be running up the pitch? Is he going to be supporting play, or have you got a hard and fast rule on that as a as a coach? Uh, we we he has uh, we're lucky that. Uh, both goalkeepers that we have actually, but in particular Shea um, McGill, who's in goals for us, he uh, he's a bit of experience. He's already played in the in the Ulster Championship against Monaghan last year, so he has uh, a vast array of experience. Um, and we tend to let him. Well, this is this is the this is the line that I give him anyway. Is that you know he he's he's it's very much up to himself as far as you know how far he wants to go out the field, but. Usually, if he crosses the forty-five, you usually hear me bellowing from the sideline. Because <laughs> as much as I am trying to be as progressive as I can, on it, sort of, we're still that old school mindset somewhere stuck in the back of my head. It's kind of been. I feel the argument has changed a little bit over the last month. It, feel, it feels like last summer. It definitely would. Have, you definitely would have been accused of being old school, for example, of saying that. Whereas now, it's like, no, the new way of thinking is that you can't go beyond your forty-five. And all that talk was one. Uh, one <laughs> Rory Beggan got turned over a few times and Kerry punched him. But I think it's something that's definitely going to be here to stay. I think there's, there's there's certain goalkeepers who are obviously taking it to the next level, and there's certain goalkeepers that are very much capable of taking it to the next level. But I do think there's a happy medium, and I also think that if a goalkeeper is a lot more comfortable, you know, if if you've got a goalkeeper who's like a really good shot stopper and his distribution is very very good. Um, I think a lot of managers are now, you know, more than happy that that he 
that he spends a bit more time in his actual goals than he does, you know, out the field. But uh, the day of him just standing on his lane and, you know, taking the kickouts, is, uh, that's that's long gone. I even see the conditioning of the goalkeeper. You know, after I, I spent a lot of time, I think, today talking about the conditioning of young lads, but uh, the conditioning even of the, of the goalkeepers as well and, and the way they have transformed, you know, body shape and, um, how much more of the training they take part in than than they probably once did, as far as you know, speed off the mark and and uh, and just and just um, general fitness and strength. I wondered then what you said there a moment ago, just about how you're not doing any SNC with these guys anymore. That they're coming into under twenties, just so primed for action. I presume that's just giving these kids so much more of a head start when it comes to the intercounty scene. And maybe in the athletic grounds last Sunday, we we saw exact evidence of that. Reen O'Neill versus David Clifford, two lads who had no problem whatsoever seamlessly slotting into a senior team. Yeah, I think you know when you know the SNC is all done more or less in their own time, you know, the county has provided a, a setup that now, you know, that 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 they can prosper in that. I think um we're lucky we have we have Paul Gaffney in with us who does a lot of the, the S and C behind the scenes and a little bit of stuff on the pitch and stuff as well. So uh, you know they are primed and, and I think anybody who watched you know the likes of Rian and and David Clifford last week, it's probably more than norm now. You know mm-hmm. that's the uh, most gays who are coming into into that setup. Sometimes, you know, people ask me, you know, why certain players haven't made a breakthrough quicker than they have. And sometimes it just comes down to not enough birthdays. You know, people are progressing at, you know, a different a different stage. And some of them take to 22 and 23 before they're probably they've, they've probably grown into themselves and, and are ready to go physically. But you know, there's gays who are obviously, you know, ahead of the curve when it comes to that. And and the two guys you named are, are well ahead of that curve. And, <clears throat> and also, you know, the, the realisation now that you just won't survive just purely unconditional and, and, you know, how you fill the jersey. But also, um, you know, the fact that, you know, you have to be, you know, adept at, at playing football now too. If you were our mass senior manager... Where would uh, where would Rian be playing at the moment? Or it it just feels sort of that there's a Michael Murphy esque debate that started to emerge around Rian that is uh, he's so good close to goal, and then like I was there on Sunday and he was coming out in front of us around the forty five quite a bit, still very effective out there. So so I'm not sure what 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 you're thinking yourself when you see that. Well, I think if I if I look at the first two games of the league and I look at the fact that, you know, we played the dubs and the dubs will give you an opportunity to play a little bit more, I think. Um certainly around that time they were anyhow. And I think the fact that he was positioned at full forward for most of the game tells you everything you need to know. And then we played um Tyrone in Armagh the following day and you know you were in Armagh the weekend so we realised that there's it's slightly more condensed and it even feels more condensed. It probably feels more condensed than it actually is uh, when you're an armor. So uh, I think then, you know, when you're playing against a team that puts a lot of bodies behind the ball, I think uh, you get very frustrated very quickly in there. So I think that's when the rotation has to happen. But looking in an ideal world, in, in my ideal world, you know, Murphy will be full forward and, and Raym will be playing the majority of his time in full forward. But uh, the way the game is now, you know, you could spend a lot of time in there and not uh, see much ball. So I think he's pro- he's probably even at the stage where he's dictating a lot of a lot of uh, where he ends up himself, considering the amount of ball he gets early on. But 
um, floating between the middle of the field and, and, and full forward, I'd be happy enough with it at the minute. I presume you would have experienced something not dissimilar to that, that level of patience that's required to, to just stay inside and to, to just wait for your moment. Yeah, um, but it's even got, it's got a lot worse since, since I was playing. I mean, you know, the, like, like the, the thing with uh, forwards and particularly corner forwards now is that they almost need to make the most of every single opportunity that they have. Um, like, I think that opportunities were coming along a lot thicker and a lot faster, you know, when I played. So, you know, there was the opportunity to kick an odd wide here and there and, or maybe not just have that first touch that you normally have. But now it seems to be just, you know, uh, magnified everything, every little mistake that you, that you make in there. And it's a very, it's probably an unforgiving place to play now. Um, but but the importance of having somebody that's willing to stay in there and maybe only see, you know, three, four balls in each half of the game, you know, is uh, they, those sort of guys are, are worth their weight in gold. And, I often look at I often look at Tyrone down through the down through the years or maybe not down through the years but for seven or eight years there and um, I always thought just the only thing they're missing is just one you know top class forward away from winning all Ireland. McCurry filled that void last year because he was exactly what it said in the thing. He just wanted to, he just wanted to score. You know what I mean? He just wanted to be in the end of things. And if you have somebody in there who's sort of a little bit selfish like that. Because um, everybody all of a sudden, I felt three and four and five years ago, everybody had gone from wanting to get in the end of things to wanting to be the provider, to wanting to be, you know, to um, pull the strings at 11 or whatever, you know, on the half forward line or the middle of the field. I mean, like, I remember jumping on the bus <coughs> going to a college match one day and I didn't know a lot of the players on the bus. So I just asked them to, to fill out a form and, and see what position, what the preferred position was. And I had 28 in the bus and 19 of them said half back. And the reason, right. the reason why they said half back was because at the time it was a fairly easy position to play because you could go forward knowing that there was plenty of protection behind you and there wasn't a lot of onus on how you marked man. So, uh, the football has evolved even, even more since that, you know, and not that long ago. So, just having that that player inside who's just that little bit selfish and just wants to be on the end of things and wants to uh, get scores is is absolutely essential. And as I say, probably the main reason why Throne ended up winning All Ireland last year because every time you looked up, there was somebody in Throne full forward line, and it's usually McCurry. Yeah, are you looking across at Throne this year? Think to yourself, they have a similar chance, or have the departures made you reconsider that? The departures definitely have, an effect, have had an effect now, but I do think that a lot of the young lads, in fairness, who have come in in an environment that probably wasn't as great as some of the boys in, in the past, in that, you know, there's, there's Toronto still seem to be playing catch-up as far as fitness and that goes. Um, but some of the young lads have been, like Monroe and a few of those guys who have come in, um, have been, I think, very, very impressive. And uh, I still think Toronto have as good a chance as they had last year. I think uh, Toronto had a, uh, at different times had a lar- large slice of luck. I mean, Monaghan could have beat them in an Ulster final. So, um, but I still think Toronto have a great chance again this year because I, th- I actually think that the, that as much as the field hasn't narrowed any as far as the, the teams that are that are in contention, uh, I think that, that it has leveled. If that makes any sense in that, yeah. Those five or six teams 
Um, they all seemed to be in and around each other. Like you, even when the, it was going well for the Dubs, you never felt they were that far away from again just throwing themselves back into contention. And people would say yeah, probably after the last three games that they have done exactly that. Yeah, it's going to be a great season for sure. I just wanted to ask you about the college. You mentioned it a couple of times, and I know this story is about a month old at this point, Oshim, but I'm just keen to, to chat to you a little bit about it anyway, about what happened with the, the Trench Cup final. For anybody who missed this, um, you were a manager of DKIT, you are manager of DKIT, and you had to pull out of the, the, the final of the Trench Cup because your players were playing that weekend in the National League. It was uh, an unbelievable Unbelievably honest thing to do. Uh, I think a lot of people maybe would have would have talked to talk, not actually walked the walk when it actually came to it. What I'm interested in is is what happened afterwards. Was was there ever any communication with the powers that be in the competition or anything like that to say, listen, how do we listen to what you're saying here and try and avoid this in the future? Yeah, we 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 were we were taken to a disciplinary meeting, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't at the disciplinary meeting, but. Um, we had college representatives there, and uh, and they told us in no uncertain terms what they thought of us, and we told them what we thought of the situation, and uh, we were told that you know there was there was no way that it would be replayed. Not that we ever, not that we ever dreamt it would. When we made that decision, we knew that 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 was it. It was it was a terrible thing. It wasn't like a a a, a throne last year where you know it was it was a bit of a chess move. It wasn't like that. It was we we knew that we wouldn't be able to play the game, but there was no way after training. I'm walking with guys the whole year that uh, we could go into a game missing nine players and be expected to play. Uh, we've taken a bit of heat. I've taken a bit of heat personally. Um, and I understand there's two sides to every story. Um, but uh, from our point of view, we had to look after the players, our players. Um, we had to listen to them. And uh, we had spoken loads of times because at college level you, you don't really get a chance to train a lot I mean you're not you're not walking these guys they're being pulled in so many different directions and you know along with that they've got studies they've got part-time jobs there's just a lot going on for them and uh, we actually had done a bit of a bit of stuff around mental health and the ability to say no uh, probably about two weeks before that so again as you say like we we had the we had to walk the walk but the, the the decision itself was was purely from the players. We left the decision to the players. You know, as you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to um, do you want to go and play with the guys? And and to a man, you know, nobody wanted to go. That was including uh, the guys who weren't on inter county panels um, or were on inter county panels. It didn't matter. To a man, every one of them said that uh, they weren't playing without their teammates, and I completely took that on board and completely understood it. But that wasn't my decision. At the end of the day, it had to come from the college. Because um, I'm only... All I'm doing is I'm doing a job in that college and I'm representing the college. But this decision that came from the players and then the college made, made the ultimate decision in the end. Do you think that you would have got a bit more... a bit more of a, a kind of a, a warm ear had... Uh... Had it been Sigerson Cup as opposed to Trench Cup, did you feel that maybe the fact that it wasn't the, the top tier competition went against you in terms of being heard out? No, it just oh, and it just wouldn't have happened at Sigerson level. Right. That's the thing, and, right. and the way this the way the Sigerson was planned out, the way it was played on the Wednesday nights was absolutely ideal for everybody. Uh, give a real opportunity and a chance to uh, to for young lads to represent the college without uh, interfering with. Um, Without interfering with with what was going on at inter county level, as regardless of you know college or how 
much sometimes it's hard to stomach. At the end of the day, inter-county football is where it's at, or inter-county hurling. That's what players want to do. They, they don't want to jeopardize, jeopardize that in any way. I'm, I'm, you don't want to jeopardize that for them. But I think the big thing is that, you know, if it was facilitated in a certain way for Seekers and that wasn't uh, passed down through to, to Trench Cup. So, I mean, it, it's not a question because it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And what sort of heat did you take? Well, my integrity was questioned and all of those sort of things and that, you know, we were looking to move and we knew exactly what, you know, it was when the competition started. We did, but we had we had flagged this up very, very early, as we had done a number of years ago. We'd flagged it up early. Actually, a number of years ago, we flagged it up that early that, you know, it was it was it was changed. It was not it wasn't a new problem. Um and we, we felt that there was a there was a great opportunity to change it, but um that never happened and there was an acceptance on our part that, that it wasn't going to happen as much as it was disappointing. And do you think that that change could, could happen in the next couple of years, like to, to save this college season? Because it seems that this has become quite a talking point regularly now. Yeah, and I love it. It'd be different if it wasn't it's a fairly simple fix. I mean, just run both, say, both competitions in parallel with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that it's fairly straightforward. Listen, Oshin, great chatting to you. You were speaking at the, the launch of the 2022 Airgrid GA Football Under-20 All-Ireland Championship. He is, of course, uh, the Armagh Under-20 manager, Oshin McConville. Airgrid, Ireland's grid operator, is charged with delivering a cleaner energy future for Ireland. Oshin, take care. Good to chat to you. Oh, thank you. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. 